Yeah, I think we should uh, we should do something for folks that are listening. Like uh, we could do like a twenty percent discount uh, for uh, folks uh, that listen to the podcast. What would be a good um, so if they go to the website, we just need to get them to put in a. Pro- we can make this up when we get offline. <laughs> what would be a good uh, a good promo code? So it's it's I, t- I tried to title the podcast as broadly as possible, mm. and I just call it the Kentucky Life Podcast because I want to just have anyone who's interesting on here. Yeah. So if if we could just do promo code KLP. You notice I'm writing this down because I'm going to have to f- do this when I get <laughs> here, and we'll do a twenty percent discount. So if you do promo code KLP, you get 20% off uh, any on-duty CBD product. Mm Thank you. You know, we, we keep it pretty laid back around here, but I, I say this with, with all sincerity. It's an honor to have you on here. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. So, you know, something we talk about in the real estate business is people buy people before they buy houses, right? Right. And it's probably the most obvious in the real estate business that that's the case because I can't hope to close on a house with you unless you hired me as your agent first. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. But unless the product you're selling is a commodity... Uh, I think there's an analog there, right? So I think there's a lot of brand equity uh, wrapped up in a person's story, right? Or a company's story, sure. right? So the purpose of the Kentucky Life podcast uh, is to highlight the stories of artists and entrepreneurs here in Lexington. Well, I've never been heaped in with an artist or an entrepreneur before, so <laughs> so thank you. I'm very excited. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So... I did a little bit of Googling on you just to try to prepare for this. And man, you are just all over the place. You're probably the biggest <laughs> renaissance man I've ever had on here. <laughs> really? Or maybe met. Like the Dos Equis guy? <laughs> yeah, that's why I grew the beard back. So I can't really put together a linear sort of cohesive narrative mm-hmm. on you. Um, it's, it's a, your story's a little bit hard to follow. So I thought maybe we'd take the opportunity to say, how did you go from... A child in in Perth, mm-hmm. Australia. Yep. Um, to Greg with a CBD oil company in Lexington, Kentucky, of all places. And and feel yeah. free to indulge as much as you want. Sure, it's it's one of those uh, questions I ask myself. I guess um, uh, you know it's it's a it's a case I think of being uh, uh, okay at a lot of things and not very good at anything. So, <laughs> you know, so um, you know. I, I don't really know how how it you know the 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 short version is um, you know I grew up in Australia uh, obviously in the south of Perth um, we uh, had a great you know Australia's a great place to grow up you know it's it's fantastic uh, uh, went to school uh, in in uh, in Australia went to school in Perth did my uh, degrees in Perth uh, well Perth and Melbourne. Um, and uh, spent time in the Australian military, obviously in the Navy. Uh, and then the way I got to the United States uh, was as a naval officer, uh, I was posted here uh, just prior to the invasion of uh, Iraq in 2003. Uh, well, actually for Afghanistan initially, but then for the, primarily for Iraq 
in 2003, and that's how I ended up in Washington, D.C. back, back gosh, 15 years ago, 16 years ago. So, so how long were you in the Australian Navy? Uh, about 10 years. And you decided to join the is, – is that optional there, or is, that, is there a draft – no, there's no draft. It's a, it's an entire since World War One, I, I believe it's it's been an entirely volunteer force. So talk to me about your decision to join the military to begin with. Um, it wasn't a hard one. I uh, uh, my father was in the army, um, you know, Vietnam, uh, and it was always something I wanted to do. I did it a little bit uh, uh, later uh, in life. I'd, I'd done some other things prior. Uh, and then was recruited to come into the uh, into the RAN as we call it, the Royal Australian Navy, um, and uh, I had a I had a great career. You know, half of it was full time, half of it was as a, as a reserve officer. But funnily enough, just like here in the US, uh, oft times you do more sort of crappy deployments when you're a reservist because the full time guys don't want to go, so right. so you get sent. So uh, the good you know the good part about that is we you know got sent to some pretty cool places. Uh, and yeah, I had, a, I had a good old time. So I, I don't know how much you can speak about this, but your your background in the Australian Navy was military intelligence, primarily. Mm-hmm. And then 2003, you came here. What, what was the? How did Australians experience 9/11 from their standpoint versus the way that we? That's a good question. Uh, let me sort of preface that a little bit. Uh, what a lot of folks don't know and, and, and have no reason to know is Australia is the only country in the world that has fought with the United States in every single conflict since World War One. <laughs> every single one. Everything from Korea to Somalia to Vietnam to Afghanistan, obviously, and Iraq and the first um, Gulf War and uh, you name it, since World War One, Australia has fought alongside the United States. Cheers. Yeah, well, cheers to that. Um, Britain hasn't done that. Uh, you know, obviously Canada hasn't done that because that would mean they'd have to, you know, fight someone. Um, yeah. They don't do that. There. They don't do that. They just watch Canadian broadcasting and and hockey. cry and hockey and then cry about how mean Americans are. <laughs> Canada's sort of like our Australia's New Zealand, except they're attached. But uh, I'm, I, I digress. So, uh, so, so bear that in mind as you uh, as I t- talk about this. Um, I was at sea um, uh, in off the coast of uh, uh, Indonesia, primarily uh, when at nine eleven, and we were doing border security uh, work. Uh, uh, we had a huge influx of um, illegal boat people coming in from um, Iran. Uh, uh, places in the Middle East that aren't necessarily friendly to Australia and they uh, uh, predominantly um, Muslim countries uh, coming in through Malaysia where there was no visas. Uh, they were landing in Malaysia and then getting onto these little junks, effectively, like we call them CFs, um, uh, suspected illegal entry vehicles. Only the Navy could come up with or vessels. Only the Navy could call a junk or a boat a CF because it's a suspected illegal entry vessel. Right. Anyhow, so we 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 spent um, you know months at a time at sea, uh, you know boarding these um, these boats and turning back the uh, the illegal immigrants or the you know the the uh, these guys that were trying to get into Australia illegally, uh, and you know it got to the point where we were having to detain them, put them on container ships, and then ship them back. So we were we were working on that. And uh, we'd just done a, a boarding. I forget what time it was, but it was dark. And 
we'd come back onto the ship. I was in a, on a, a, a guided missile uh, destroyer at the time. And uh, the skipper, you know, we'd just got back to our racks. Uh, and, and the skipper, you know, we get the call, you know, uh, officers, you know, onto the, into the, uh, we went, and we went unusually into the sort of skipper's quarters. And, and he was like, there's been a, a plane has hit the World Trade Center. And I'll remember this, uh, you know, forever. And, there was, you know, think back, you know, this is a, you know, a long time ago, right? There was no text and we were in the middle of the ocean. So we had no insight to what it was. We literally had a telex print off saying, you know, planes at the World Trade Center, be on alert kind of deal. And at the time, we thought it was, you know, like a Cessna or a light plane or something like that. Then we got the message, the second plane had hit. Uh, and literally within the hour, maybe two hours, uh, we were at uh, highest alert possible. At, you know, we were locked and loaded uh, because we didn't know where the threat was coming from. So we were, you know, bobbing around in the ocean with our with our consort ships, and uh, we were ready for ready for anything. And interestingly, at the time, uh, and I don't know why this happened to to this day, we got buzzed by uh, Indonesian military aircraft uh, and all this sort of thing and uh, yeah it was it was interesting but so we were still at sea and we were only getting snippets of what had happened on 9-11 still you know we knew what you know we knew what had happened we I still hadn't seen an image we finally got back into Darwin which is up in the top uh, top of Australia in the north uh, which by the way was the only uh, city bombed by the Japanese in World War Two in Australia um, that's a little that's something you can remember for, uh, you know, your next quiz night or whatever. Um, and so there we are. We got back in. The first place I saw, in, and this is probably three weeks, I guess, after 9-11, maybe two weeks after the actual event. Uh, and the first image I saw of 9-11 was in an Australian Woman's Weekly at the uh, – <laughs> when I got off the boat, off the ship. Actually, we were in the little boats to get back in, and there was like a little um, convenience store went in to buy, you know, a, a, a can of Coke or something. And on the store, in the store were magazines and on the front of the cover was the images of 9-11. And that was the first time I'd, I'd actually seen the images of what had happened. So from an Australian perspective, I think, uh, you know, the, for the first time in, you know, since, the, since World War II, uh, Australia, I, and I guess this will point to the feeling in, in the country, was Australia invoked the ANZUS Treaty, which is the Australian-New Zealand-US Defence Pact, after 9-11. And that was the first time since, or, or until that point and since. So that was how seriously it was taken in Australia. So I was in seventh grade in English class. She's, yeah, that's, that's aged me a little bit. Uh, and we had the, the TVs with the arms that came out, and um, someone ran into our class and said, a plane just hit the Twin Towers. Um, so there was no TV in the room that I was in, so we went to Mr. Hammond's science class. Right. There. And we were, we were watching someone um, on CNN, I think it was, after the first plane hit, and everyone assumed that it was an accident. Right, uh, right. Mm-hmm. And so we were sitting there, and we watched live as the second plane hit. Um, and for me as a kid... My reaction to that was like, no, I had absolutely no concept of the magnitude uh, right. of, of what was happening then. Um, but the, the security implications and the cultural implications of that 
have completely changed our world, at least here. Oh, no question. Hmm. And so I, I'm sure from your perspective, all you could do is react from a, a military standpoint, which is what do we need to prepare for? What's our responsibility here? Um, talk to me. You know, you said you, you first saw an, an image of that in, in a women's magazine. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to me about the process of, of digesting that in terms of its implications going forward beyond you know, what are my responsibilities here today? Right, and that's a good question. I mean, you know, we by the time we got to sh- back to Darwin, uh, we had effectively a, a media blackout, right? So uh, because we're a heightened state of alert and all that sort of thing, you know, guys couldn't send messages off the ship or images. But But you think back, it wasn't very easy back then to send an image of anything particularly and, you know, uh, cell phones were still flip phones if you had one and yeah, all that right. sort of thing. No one had a camera in their phone. Right. You know, it, was, it was all craziness. Um, you know, so w- from a perspective of, uh, I, I guess until I got back to Darwin, it was, wasn't was even front of mind because we were so immersed in the mission we were doing, uh, which was board, that, that uh, uh, border security mission, uh, that, you know, we weren't directly involved in that. But that was one of the reasons uh, we, myself and a couple of shipmates, had to come back into into Darwin uh, was because, you know, we then had another job, um, uh, which was, you know, focused on on, on the, new th- the new threat uh, of uh, fundamentalist Islamist terrorism, which until that point hadn't even been a... You know, certainly in Australia, certainly at my pay grade, at least hadn't been a hadn't been a in my I never even really thought about it. So you know, we had to do a pretty quick pivot, like like folks did here. Uh, you know, I'm sure the you know the the bosses, the head shed, the the people that were you know driving the the uh, the you know ASIO and ASIS and our you know national security apparatus, you know, would have had that threat assessment sitting there. But until there was the actual kinetic event. Uh, that that wasn't a a front of mind issue. It certainly wasn't for me. Um, I'm sure there was specialists doing that, uh, but it quickly became one. I mean, it, it, one could argue effectively that event, that terrorist attack, uh, has literally shaped my last twenty years, uh, in one way or the other. Whether it's directly involved or it's just my location, because if that hadn't happened, I would never have moved to the United States. So your decision to move to the United oh it wasn't States. My, wasn't my decision, it was I was voluntold. I was it was funny. I was sitting. Uh, it was a Saturday, and in, 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 uh, if uh, folks at home have never uh, watched Australian rules football, which isn't rugby, it isn't soccer, it's Australian football. Google it, Australian rules football, and watch a highlight reel or something because it's the greatest game ever. So I was sitting at home on the couch, probably having a beer, uh, watching the watching the, you know, Saturday football, the Australian Football League. Uh, and I get a phone call and it was my boss who was a, who was a, uh, uh, gosh, what was, uh, he was a two-star, one-star army guy at the time. And he called me and he was like, uh, Greg, do you want to, we need someone to go to Washington, uh, you know, for the build-up, uh, do you want to go? And I thought he was, you know, bullshitting to me because normally the phone call was, uh, we need someone to go to Papua New Guinea or some other, you know, 
country that you don't particularly want to go to. You know, there's uh, there's not much upside to going to um, Timor uh, in monsoon season kind of deal. So that's what the call normally was. So I thought he was bullshitting to me to try and get me to say, yeah, I'm free. So I was going, oh, yeah, sure, 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 waiting for the penny to drop. Anyhow, he's like, no, we need you to go and we need you to go Monday. I'm like, okay. So uh, he gave me a week. So it was the next Monday. So uh, in that week, I, you know, like a lot of military guys do, military women do, I had to find someone to, you know, I had to stop what I was doing. I had to, you know, rent out my house. I had to get rid of my car because I didn't know how long I was going for pack up. I didn't know anything about Washington. And a week later, I had landed in DC uh, with all my stuff. Uh, the folks at the embassy didn't know I was coming particularly. Uh, so I just rocked up on Monday and went and saw the two star that was in charge. And he's like, uh, give me half hour, I'll find out what the hell you're doing here. <laughs> so that's how I got to DC. And I've pretty much been here ever since apart from a brief stint back in Australia. That was still 2001? No, that was 2002, I think. To end of 2002, beginning of 2003. So you were here for a year still serving in the Australian Navy? Oh, yeah. I was here for yeah, I was here for 18 months in that role. I was the head of information ops at the uh, mission. I was the liaison officer at the Pentagon. Can you talk about your move from the Australian Navy to sure. MLK here? So uh, in the, uh, during that period, uh, I deployed uh, to Iraq uh, as a, what they call a third country deployment which means I'm in Australian uniform and my ultimate command is Australian, but I answer to an American chain of command. Uh, so I deployed like that, um, got to know a bunch of the guys, uh, worked closely obviously with uh, uh, some really great Marines, uh, some really great National Guardsmen, you know, Americans. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was, it, was, it was good. I mean, the Australian military is one of the highest trained, uh, most well-trained uh, in the world, uh, but it's much smaller. Effectively, you know, the US has much better toys and much bigger things that go boom. Uh, so, and a lot, you know, the, 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 the resource ratio is just not even, a, it's just off the charts. So, the, you know, the interesting thing was the amount of resource that, you know, I had at my disposal. I'm like, this is pretty cool. The thing that wasn't pretty cool was the amount of nonsense with all the admin and the red tape that goes along with the US military. It's just insane um but that's a i could write a book about that so it's my understanding when you are in another military service and then you try to join ours you typically have to restart in your mm -hmm. rank <laughs> yep but you didn't do that i did not uh I, well i did in some so it's a that's a that's another long story so you have time yeah so to my understanding and well certainly at the time uh i was the first uh, foreign national to come out of a allied naval service into the US Navy with some officer rank. So uh, effectively, so when I, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, agreed to do it, it was like, yeah, you can come over at rank and everything will be fine. Anyhow, after I'd signed the papers, that turned out not to be fine because what the Admiral said that's recruiting me in is not the same as what the guys in personnel are saying. So it was pretty funny. I uh, I had to uh, report as an ensign again uh, to uh, this knife and fork school in uh, Newport, Rhode Island, and uh, I was an ensign, right? So there was me and all the 
18-year-olds and the... Uh, <laughs> Uh, it was pre- and I was gosh, how old was I then? I was like thirty five, thirty six, and we had to. I remember this. This is one of the funniest things. We had to. There was a like a whiteboard in the in the in the lines in the um, in the bunkhouse where you had to write up when you first reported, you know, because there was a bunch of folks that either came in as direct entry that were you know dentists or doctors or whatever, uh, and then there was uh, prior enlisted guys that were coming up to do officer training, uh, and then there was. Uh, other folks transferring from um, another service, so coming in from the Marine Corps or from from the uh, Air Force or something like that. Um, and so you had to write up, you know, rah, rah, what you did before, and you know, just one line. And so, you know, I wrote up, you know, Commander, Royal Australian Navy, you know, blah, 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 and my where I was and everything. <laughs> Anyhow, so I, I'll never forget the, the chief came over to me. He's like, uh, sir, is that you? And I was like, <laughs> yeah, it is, chief. And he's like, okay, that's fine. And he was a great guy. He was a ball buster, but uh, whenever there was some, like they had to do, you know, it was like boot camp. So people were rolling. You had to roll around in the mud and jump up and do all this stupid running and, you know, you know nonsense. <laughs> Anyhow, so any time there was something really distasteful, the chief would be, uh, Ensign, Keely, come here. So I'd go over and he'd go, I need you to go up to, you know, the head office and get this. <laughs> and I didn't have anything to do, so I'd just go and lay on, my bank, uh, on the rack and chill out for a bit and then... <laughs> Uh, then uh, get back to work when, when they'd finish rolling around in the mud and stuff. So he was a good guy. And there was another guy uh, in, my, in, our, uh, in our cadre that was a Mustang, which is a means they're a former senior enlisted guy that has uh, come into the officer ranks. Uh, and, you know, those guys have all been around the block a few times and he was probably older than me. And uh, uh, he got the same treatment. He was like, yeah, we need you to run over here and do that. And he's like, copy that. And then off he'd go and see him again in two hours after they'd done the crappy stuff. So what's the role that John McCain played in this then? Uh, so it was it was interesting. Um, I was working in the US Congress, so here's another funny story. So when you, in the whole of the United States government, there was nowhere I could work in a national security capacity uh, because I wasn't a US citizen uh, and and couldn't get a US clearance because of that, except in Congress. <laughs> so it's insane. So there I was, this Australian guy. I was, you know, a, a senior advisor to the um, uh, deputy chairman or vice chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, Jim Saxton. Uh, and it was funny, I'd go to a briefing with Chairman Saxton or Vice Chairman Saxton and we'd go up to, you know, CENTCOM or wherever, and uh, they'd go through the list and I'd go, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Mr Keeley, you can't come in because, you know, <laughs> you don't have a clearance. I'm like, okay, because then I'd just have to find out some some other way. Uh, so that would happen all the time. So I worked for uh, Jim Saxon on the Hill and then for Ed Royce, who was the chairman of the Foreign Relations this Committee. This was later on. It wasn't, it wasn't when you immediately transitioned to our military here. Oh, this was before. So, oh, this is before. Yeah, so I, I sort of retired out of the Australian military uh, and re- kind of retired. In, I went back for uh, back to Australia for nearly a year and, and deployed to New Guinea with the Australian Federal Police and then came back and uh, moved back to the US. So I had that sort of little nine-month gap, came back, and the only job I could get in where I wanted to work was in Congress. So uh, I worked... 2004, 2005, you were on the hill? Oh, gosh. Yeah, I think that'd be about right. I was up on the hill for about five years. 
So I worked for the Armed Services Committee or for the member, uh, the vice chairman, the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee and then spent a couple of years with um, a, a senator from Wyoming uh, who was on foreign relations and uh, who's a great guy, so John Barrasso. So, um, uh, you know, he's now number three in the US Senate uh, and we still, you know, text from time to time. I'm sure he gets my text now and he's like, oh, my God. He has. To, he kind of feels obliged <laughs> to reply, but he's a really he's a really genuinely good good guy. He's super smart, um, and I don't think it'll be too long uh, before he's the uh, Senate Majority Leader. Not. I'm not talking like next week. I'm talking in the scheme of things, not too long. Um, I think Senator McConnell's got a little bit, you know, a few uh, a few uh, runs left in him, but uh, I think uh, Senator Barrasso is setting himself up very nicely there. You think McConnell's got more than one term left? You know what? I don't know. How old is he now? He's in his 70s, isn't he? Yeah, he kind of looks it. But, uh, yeah, he's got to be, I would think. Um, you know what? I don't, I don't even know when he's up next. But, uh, you know, let's say he's in 70... Let's just make something up. Let's say he's 72. Uh, if he got elected next, if he's up in 2020, uh, he would then have, you know, he'd be 78, 80... By the time he retired, uh, and that's one thing with the US. He is seventy-seven. Well, look at that. But there you go. Chuck Grassley is eighty-six. And he's up this coming year, right? Gosh, he was born when the Japs bombed Pearl Harbor. <laughs> I mean, seriously, this is one thing. This is one thing about the US. I re- and I don't know if they do in Australia. I've no clue. But I, I really think there should be. Not term limits necessarily, but age limits. At some point, you know, you don't have all your... You're not as sharp as you should be. I mean, you shouldn't be 86 and be in the United States Senate. means test our senators, right? Right, yeah. I mean, you know, they. I, I've had more than one senator joke with me about, you know, this is the greatest retirement home in, you know, in the world. There's only 100 of them and they can just sit there until they, you know, die because I don't want to go home. So. I was an intern in Rand Paul's office for about 30 minutes. <laughs> Jesus. And uh, I remember um, I remember being at Union Station and seeing Charlie Rangel being wheeled up. Oh, yeah. The mm-hmm. And I, I'm, I've had a feeling he wasn't the only one. Oh, no. But, yeah. I'll never forget, uh, I just got back from Iraq in, uh, gosh, I guess this is 2002. 12, I, I, anyhow, one, 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 one of the times. And, anyhow, so, and a good friend of mine was a lobbyist in D.C., still is, and uh, he was doing some Kentucky event. It was a dinner, sit-down dinner. And, I'd, I'd, and when I say got back, I'd been back a couple of days. And uh, it was 2012. Anyhow, so he invited me to come to this dinner and he literally sat me between Rand Paul on one side and Mitch McConnell on the other side. What year was that? 2012, I think. I'm terrible with dates. Was that the summer? I might have been there. It probably was. I yeah, was probably it there. Probably was the summer. Yeah, it was raining. I remember it was raining, but I think it was in summer. Okay. And so there I am. I'm sitting here, in the literally in this in the middle of the thing. Rand Paul's here. Mitch McConnell's here. Secretary uh, Chow is here on the next to Mr. McConnell, Senator McConnell, and the Senator McConnell was super engaging. He asked some very uh, pertinent questions about 
you know, our, our, our actual Afghanistan. We were talking about Afghanistan. I'm sorry, not Iraq. Uh, talking about Afghanistan, that's why it was 2012. And he, he asked some really interesting questions and he seemed genuinely interested. In fact, his chief of staff followed me up after that. Nothing ever happened of it, but, you know, at least, you know, he was engaged in the conversation. Rand Paul, uh, I could have been a dust mite that he would have stomped on had he had the opportunity. He was like an unpleasant fellow and, uh, well, he was unpleasant to me. He's probably nice to everyone else. But um, I left with a very good impression of Senator McConnell and a less than stellar impression of uh, the, Kentucky's second senator. Mm. You want to take a break? Sure. Very good. So we kind of skipped ahead a little bit. Um, you came here in long about 2002. Um, you were on the yep. Hill by 2004? Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we kind of skipped to an event in 2012. So right. What happened in the eight years in between? I don't know. It's all a blur. Um, you, you know what? Uh, I'm terrible with dates, and everyone will tell you that. Uh, so I did five years on Capitol Hill. Um, uh, I deployed from Senator Barrasso's office to Afghanistan. That would have been in 2010, something like that. Uh, Actually, I worked for a uh, private equity firm in Washington. Specifically, what was your role in Senator Barrasso's office? Uh, I was officially his communications director. So uh, we did uh, everything. Uh, You know, he went back to Wyoming every single weekend, uh, which isn't an easy task in of itself. Uh, and so I would go back to Wyoming pretty much at least twice a month. Uh, and it was great. I loved it. So, uh, But I also uh, staffed him whenever he did any of his uh, uh, codels when he would go to Afghanistan or Syria or Iraq or that sort of thing. Did you get any sort of education in Amer- American politics while you were on the Hill? I mean, I assume coming from Australia, you weren't that familiar with the way our politics worked. Uh, I was a politics major for, you know... Political science? Yeah, yes, indeed, uh, for what that's worth. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, I was, uh, I was never going to get any other job. Yeah. Um, so I worked in the Australian Parliament for uh, probably a couple of years. Okay. Um, uh, sort of interspersed between my military uh, work. Um, and I worked for a guy called Alan Ferguson who was a senator from uh, South Australia. Uh, he was the uh, became the president of the Senate. Uh, but when I worked for him, he was the chairman of the... Uh, Foreign Affairs and Defence Committee in the Parliament. Uh, he was a gr- farmer, uh, super good guy. Uh, I've been very lucky. I have every single politician that I've worked for, both here uh, in the US and in Australia, have been decent people that care about their constituents and uh, aren't just in it to get on TV. Well, they all like getting on TV, but there's a lot of politicians and you know you don't have to be a, a rocket scientist to work out which ones they are that aren't necessarily there for the people that elected them. And they're more than not. Uh, but, you know, I've been very fortunate. Ed Royce, Jim Saxton, John Barrasso, uh, uh, Senator Minchins in Australia and Senator um, uh, Ferguson, all super good guys, all cared about their people that they represented and their countries. And so I've been very, very lucky because I can tell you horror stories from uh, staffers that, have worked for just some awful, awful, awful politicians. I was shocked to learn, and this was my naivety at the time, but I was shocked to learn 
this country, at least congressionally, is run by people that are under the age of 35. Oh, absolutely. Um, absolutely. I mean, kids get a political science major, graduate from college, and then they're on the Hill. And in, uh, in, invariably it's because dad or mom knows so Senator true. Schmuckatelli yeah. and can get you a job uh, as an intern or as a... Uh, you know, as a junior staffer and you just work your way up from there. It was funny, when I went up to the Hill, I literally printed off a whole bunch of resumes and I walked, and I, at the time I was fairly agnostic to who I went to work for. I was going to, but I was going to people that were on Armed Services, Foreign Relations, Intelligence Committee, and Democrats and Republicans, because I didn't really care at that point. I was, I just dropped resumes off everywhere, Right like I'm sure lots of people do, and I walked the halls of Congress for like two weeks doing that, House and, and Senate. You were just trying to, because you didn't have security clearance, you were just trying to get into a position where you could be Correct, engaged. correct. And I love politics, so, uh, and nothing happened from any of them. And then I was like, well, screw this, I'll you know, think of something else. And so I, was, I went to Mexico uh, uh, for a week off. I was just like, okay, I'll recalibrate, go down, see what else is going to happen. One morning, like it was kind of early, uh, or it might have been I just went to bed late, I don't remember, probably the latter, uh, the phone rings in my room and like literally no one knew where I was. Uh, and it was um, Elise, who was the chief of staff for Jim Saxton, who was the vice chairman of armed services, called, called and said, uh, we would like to offer you a position. Can you come in today and we can talk about it? I'm like, uh, I'm in Mexico, uh, but she's like, look, we've got, you, we've got the job you, we discussed. Uh, when can you start? I'm like, awesome. <laughs> so I stayed in Mexico for another week and I turned back up on Sunday and went to work on the hill on Monday. It was that easy. So it wasn't as much of a culture shock for you? Not really. I think the thing that, that shocks me the most about American politics is the money involved at retail level. Like a, a member of the in Congress in the House is literally fundraising from the day they get elected. That's correct. And that was the thing that shocked me the most. So, uh, you know, Ed Royce, who uh, just retired in the last session, the last cycle, uh, nicest guy, literally the, one of the nicest guys I've ever met, uh, he hated fundraising, right, hated it because he didn't like asking people for money. Like, who does, except politicians? Ed didn't. Um, but he would have to go and raise money half the time when while he was in Washington. You know, they'd go to a building off-site so they weren't doing it in congressional time, all that sort of stuff. Uh, and that's the thing that shocked me the most. That was the biggest... Like, in Australia, you're elected for four years. It's not a big money thing. You know, you, you, know, you, you take some ads out, put some ads in the paper on the radio and stuff, but it's not like people aren't spending... $10 million to win a congressional race in Australia. So it's just absurd here. I think that's the biggest failing of the of the system here. What do you attribute that to? I don't know. I think it's just becoming... Well, one is the two-year cycle, which is ridiculous, right? You don't go and get a job at Burger King and expect to be there for two years. So, um, you know, members of the House that are elected shouldn't either. You know, you should... There should be enough faith in, you know, whether, and whether they split the cycle, so like they do in the Senate, half are up for election this four years, half are up, so there's always turnover. Uh, do it like that. But there needs to be, uh, you know, four-year terms, three years at the minimum, because right now they're just having to raise money, raise money, raise money. And, uh, you know, 
I think it's just the consumer culture of the United States. You know, to 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 be elected to something, you have to be on TV. Otherwise, you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, I think that's, you know, fading a little bit with social media and things like that. You know, you just look at the spends between uh, television and radio and, you know, Facebook and Instagram uh, comparative to even two years ago, and it's literally flipped on its head. Uh, so, but... Regardless, that's still expensive. So people just raise money and, you know, it's like an arms race. You know, you report. You know, maybe if they took the financial reporting out, if you're candidate A and you've raised a million and then candidate B's raised 10 million and you don't know, well, that's just how it is. But uh, but if he's raised 10 million and you know about it, you've got to go and raise nine more million dollars. And, you know, they literally do sell themselves out. And it's it's terrible, but that's what it is. So I wish it wasn't like that, but it is. I think the intention with the, the way the framework was established was that um, Congress would be more accountable because their tor- terms are shorter versus senators. Oh, I'm sure that's... Terms, mm-hmm. Right? Um, but it's um, it's a little bit like steroids in baseball, right? Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was the epidemic uh, early 2000s, late 90s of steroids in baseball, Um uh, Hitters were on steroids, so pitchers got on steroids too because they had to compete. Right. They, I'm sure there were a lot of players that, that didn't want to do that. They just didn't want to lose their career. Right. Right. And, and politicians are the same. They don't want to lose their career. It's sort of like that. They don't want to go home, so mm-hmm. they have to do what they have to do to stay there. Yep. Um, what do you say – we don't have to go into this too much, but what do you say to the argument that fundraising wouldn't be so much of a part of – part of politics um, if there wasn't so much influence for sale to begin with, right? So mm-hmm. the, the idea here, spirit of 76 or whatever here, right. was that government wouldn't be so involved in our lives, but the fact that it is means it's, it's in the interest of lobbyists and businesses to engage financially with, with our politics. It's for sale, effectively. It's for sale, right? Right. And, yeah, and... I, I I dislike that enormously. Like, but there's you know I, I think the worst thing the Congress did uh, in the last well not the worst they've done lots of stupid things but one thing that stands out to me is doing away with um, earmarks because what's that what that has done and earmarks for folks that um, you know may not follow politics that closely uh, means a politician can earmark a sum of money to get a bridge built or to get a new school built or whatever it is. So everyone, you know, the, the argument against that is that, you know, you can buy whatever. The argument for it is that that forces elected officials to cooperate because, okay, so uh, I need a school built in uh, Jefferson County in Alabama. I'm senator from Jefferson County in Alabama I need a school because that's in my electorate and they really need it. Uh, and then this Democrat in California needs a bridge built so they can go and smell their tulips and, you know, rub patchouli oil all over themselves. Uh, but they need that bridge to get to the patchouli oil, right? So normally they wouldn't agree to do anything and now they don't because they don't have to. But when there's earmarks, they have to go, well, I need the patchouli oil and I need to get my to my hemp crop on the other side, and so they go, okay, well, I'll give you that if you give me this, and in the meantime, we'll fix that. And that's what was happening. And now that they've taken that away, there's no earmarks, there's no reason. 
that's why things are so polarised now. There's no reason for them to cooperate. And it's as simple as earmarks. I believe so. Mm-hmm. The quicker they bring earmarks back in, the better. It, it sounds counterintuitive. Well, I, I think people... I think earmarks are sort of low-hanging fruit. Uh, right. Whenever people criticise government spending and waste, right? Right. Um, but earmarks are really such an infinitesimal part of the budget to begin with. Yeah, it's schools and bridges and it's things like that. It's very relevant right. in terms of the budget. Correct. Right? I agree. Mm-hmm. So I'm a big fan of earmarks. It's It sounds counterintuitive, but I think it's uh, something we should look to bring back. So Mitch McConnell, if you're listening, take that on board. So you worked in three congressional offices? Mm-hmm. Two in the House, one in the Senate. Was it radically different? Yeah. The House versus the Senate? Very much, yeah. It's, you know, the way, the best, easiest way to look at it is the House is, you know, you're undergrad, you're in a fraternity, you're in a sorority. Or if you're in a fraternity, you're trying to get in the sorority, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's 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 much younger or, or or immature is the wrong word, but it's just it's a very different feel. It's it's uh, uh, and then you go to the Senate, and it's much more buttoned down. The staff are much more serious, if you like. Uh, not to say it's you know a bunch of robots walking around up there, but they're doing a lot. You know, the, the work is a lot more weighty, and the people that are carrying it out are more focused on the work. So if you've got policy guys in the Senate, uh, they're by and large experts on what they're doing. If you've got a policy person in the House, uh, you know, their their dad gave or mom gave a bit of money to the campaign and so they made them the uh, energy LA. It's just different. The, I like the Senate. The House was great fun for, you know, a couple of years while I was, uh, three or four years while I was there. Uh, but it's much younger. It's more about, it's, it's, it's literally a fraternity versus doing your PhD. That's, if you were in college, that's, that would be how you'd equate it. So at, it was after your time there that you were, again, deployed mm-hmm. with our military? Uh, yes, that was my, so I was sworn into the U.S. Navy uh, by Admiral um, Cotton, who was the chief of the Navy Reserve, I think he was a four-star, three-star, four-star admiral, um, uh, in the Armed Services Committee at the Senate, in the U.S. Senate. It was really cool. I had the uh, I had the Senate chaplain there who did a uh, uh, invocation. Uh, I had uh, the chairman of the Armed Services Committee. I had the you know Duncan Hunter. Had the uh, chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, Ed Royce, who I worked for at the time. Um, obviously, Senator Barrasso. There was all the brass that, you know, were advisors to the Armed Services Committee. Uh, Senator McCain was there, Senator Lieberman. It was crazy, all for this ensign, because I was sworn in as an ensign uh, uh, in the Senate Armed Services. It was it was really cool. It was a very special day. I had my car stolen, my truck stolen the same day. So it was, a, it was memorable. So you went to Iraq first? Uh, no, with the U, uh, with, no, with the US, my first deployment was uh, Afghanistan. What can you share about those experiences? I don't talk about it very much. Um, I like being deployed, funnily enough. Uh, uh, you know, in, the, in that deployment, that 2011, 2012 deployment, uh, we did probably, I shouldn't know this, but 12, over a dozen different provinces in all through Afghanistan. Uh, you know, uh, it was interesting work. 
the, I'd, I spent a few months, um, which was kind of fun, uh, as the uh, uh, liaison officer, escort officer, whatever you want to call it, uh, for the um, con- for the Senate and um, VIP visits. So, uh, you know, I, I was having McCain and uh, Lieberman, and we had a bunch of governors come over. But I knew these; I'd met them all. Yeah, right? had relationships from the hills. So I'd, you know, they'd, they'd rock up, and they wouldn't know I was there. And wouldn't think about it. And I'd be, hey, Senator. And they'd go, Greg, what are you doing here? I'm like, I'm guarding your ass, Senator. <laughs> you know, and it was it was funny. And, uh, you know, and so I'd see staffers that I'd worked with on the Hill and I'm in uniform telling them to duck their head when we're you know, doing something or whatever or don't walk that way because you might get shot kind of thing. Uh, it was fun. I, 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 I enjoyed it. It's, it's hard being away from family, of course, but, uh, you know, I think... You, you know, I, I don't think I know it's harder for families here because when you're deployed, you're literally on the job 24-7. You're just working all the time. Uh, it's not as though you're, you know, sort of going to Club Med or whatever. Uh, you're literally all the time working. You're just – that's all you're doing, whether you're outside the wire or whether you're, you know, if you're running the post office in on, you know, the base in Kandahar, uh, you're working all the time. And so – You've got that focus, and you don't. You sort of think about family, but you do it in you know your downtime. Whereas family is always sort of doing their regular thing and just wondering when the heck you're going to get home to to you know help walk the dog and you know take the trash out kind of deal. So you met your wife here uh, in the US, yeah, in Washington, mm-hmm. and she's worked in the government as well, correct? Yes, she worked in the government. She was yes. She worked for the government. We actually met in a uh, at a um, a ball in uh, Washington D.C. at an embassy, and uh, she didn't want to. I you know sort of asked her out, and she said no, like flat out. She was like mm, no, <laughs> and uh, I used all my uh, all my guile and training to track her down. Uh, it just got to the point where I'd called the few mutual friends or a few people I knew. I didn't even know these people, but I knew who they were. And so I started bugging them and <laughs> to try and get her number. She wouldn't That's give me a number. Oh, yeah. She wouldn't give me a number or anything. Yeah. And in the end, one of her friends called her and said, look, you've just got to call this guy and tell him to bugger off. <laughs> Anyhow, this, this, I'm not making this up at all. And uh, so she gives uh, my wife my number and uh, she – then, so then I had a number, right? And so then I asked her out once and she said no. Then I asked her out a second time. She said no. I'm like, mm, okay. So then I called her up and said, look, I'm going to ask you out a third time. If you say no, I've got a three strikes you're out rule and I can't ask you out again. It's just a rule, right? It's a, it's a law. So she was just like, oh, my God, who is this guy? Anyhow, so she was, I asked her out to dinner or something. I forget. And she said, no. I said, well, I can't. That's it. And she's like, I'll meet you for a coffee. I'm like, sweet. So it was winter and uh, I, I uh, put on the whole regalia. I had the, um, you know, the long, you know, the long trench coat on, the, you know, the aviator glasses, the whole nine yards, you know, the whites. Uh, oh, no, it wasn't whites. It was winter, but I had, like, it was like I was going to a funeral kind of deal. Like I had everything on that I could possibly wear. And uh, after that, uh, yeah, she just 
it just sort of went pretty quick after that and we've been together like 16, 17 years now. Was she, so is she the Kentucky connection? No, we don't have any Kentucky connection. None apart from apart from on duty, the CBD company. Got it. So we might as well get into that. When did when did on duty start, and what's the um, what's the origin story for on duty? Because from your background and from your experience, from what you've told us, it's not obvious, right? Right, and yeah, no, it's not. Um, that's a good question. So, you know, when I came back in 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 uh, twelve. Uh, like a like a lot of uh, servicemen and women, you know, I came back with a bunch of issues, you know, from PTSD, you know, I had traumatic brain injury, PTSD, um, nightmares, uh, sleep, you know, obviously sleeplessness, insomnia, uh, all that sort of thing, like, uh, you know, plus physical uh, uh, injuries uh, with shoulders and blah, blah, blah. Uh, so... Uh, like a lot of people uh, that come back, the VA are overwhelmed and they literally, you come back and you say, well, I've got all these problems. I go, well, here you go. Here's a bag of uh, drugs. Uh, take them. So I took them. Uh, I was taking seven different opioids a day for five years. And then a guy, and this is, uh, the, I'll tell you this because then a guy that I know don't know well. He's kind of a bit sketchy. <laughs> Truth be told, I found out later. <laughs> Anyhow, um, he's like, oh, um, he called me up out of the blue. He goes, do you still have that PTSD thing? I'm like, uh, yeah, that PTSD thing. Sure, yeah, I do. Uh, and he's like, oh, I, I want you to try CBD to see if it helps you out. I didn't even know. This was in December last year. Uh, I didn't even know what it was. I literally I was on the phone with him and I Googled December it. December 2018, you didn't know what CBD was? Correct. Zero idea. No, I'd never even heard of it. Uh, so I Googled it while he's talking to me on the phone and uh, he was uh, he was like, yeah, I want you to try it because I'm looking to get into CBD, you know. I'm like, oh, whatever, okay. So I literally meet this guy in the parking lot of a Piggly Wiggly <laughs> supermarket. Was it still around? Oh, yeah, in Alabama. <laughs> Piggly Wigglies are all over the place. Yeah, this is in Birmingham. Roll Tide, baby. We're going to crush LSU this weekend. Um, and I met him in this parking lot and he was explaining it to him like, oh, whatever. And so he gets his dropper and he's got my head tilted back and he's putting drops in my mouth and I'm waiting for the <laughs> – this is no bullshit. I'm waiting for the federal police, for the FBI to come and tap on the door and bust me. Like I had no clue what it was all about. Anyhow, so I took it. I didn't feel like it did anything or whatever and he called me the next day and he goes, oh, did it do anything? I said, no, didn't do jack shit. Uh, and he goes, he goes, oh, okay. And he calls me back five minutes later. He goes, oh, I gave you the dog CBD. Sorry about that. I'm like, you jerk. So anyhow, so that, so I cut off ties with him. And then I did some, started doing research into it. And, you know, there, there, there was a lot of, you know, it was uh, a lot of research into, you know, how beneficial CBD, can, 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 I can never say it, CBD is for... Um, yeah, that thing. Is for... Uh, um, you know, PTSD and anxiety and, and things like that. So I thought, well, I want to find something decent. And so I tried a bunch of different ones over sort of over Christmas of 18, New Year. Probably Christmas, 18, yeah. Anyhow, so what I didn't like was so much of it, I couldn't tell where it was from. 
what was particularly in it, you know, whether it was from, you know, I then found out that some of the stuff I was using was imported from China and, you know, and I'm thinking, well, if I'm going to take this, I've got to do something, you know, get something good. So I, I kept looking and everything pointed to Kentucky. So I found a couple of different uh, brands that I thought I'd, you know, use. And so I came to Kentucky and did all this stuff. Anyhow, and then I met my business partners, now business partners, and we were like, well, why don't we just make it and make it for folks that don't normally get it? So, you know, military, police, first responders, nurses, school teachers, anyone that serves their community that wouldn't, like me, didn't even know what it was, right? So what we're trying to do with on-duty CBD is make it accessible and not scary for people that are in government jobs, for want of a better term. So you said you were taking five opioid pills? Six. Six. Maybe seven at some point. Oxycodone? No, I never... I didn't, hydrocodone? No, I didn't have any of that. I, I took mainly uh, meds for um, anxiety, PTSD, so nightmares. you as well? Gosh, I don't know. I was just taking them. Blue ones, white ones, yellow <laughs> ones. I'd, I'd, I had things for sleep, like, uh, you know, simple like trazodone, and then I had, uh, gosh, what, sertraline and... Uh, I literally they were just in a thing. I go pop 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 pop. Take them. Felt like shit. How long were you on those medications? N- nearly five years. Yeah, five years at least. Actually, what am I saying? Nearly five years. Probably nearly six years. So it's not it, it's not obvious to me from the experiences you you detailed what you would have PTSD from. It seems like you enjoyed your deployment, you know, protecting senators. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, the, the hardest part uh, from that perspective is the when you're outside the wire, particularly when you're driving, uh, and I still do it now, is, uh, you know, if a vehicle pulls up next to you or comes into an intersection or does any of that sort of stuff, you're waiting for it to hit you or blow up. And that's... Uh, you know, that's a big part of that. I mean, we rolled up on, uh, you know, uh, where there'd been ambushes of, of school buses, you know, full of kids or, or one one uh, armoured armored vehicle that got uh, blown up by an IED that was full of contractors, Americans primarily. Going to the airport, we were like the second vehicle on scene in, in Kabul. Uh, you know, that sort of stuff stays with you. Um, you know, we had... Incidents in helicopters when I got concussed on my TBI a couple of times. In a helicopter? Yeah, we had uh, what what we term in the military or the or the uh, army terms a hard landing, which so you got shot down. Hard landing. <laughs> I don't think it's like you never retreat. You never get shot down. We have hard landings. Right. So was uh, Brian Williams there. <laughs> Brian Williams was, <laughs> and Hil- Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton was flying the helicopter, <laughs> and uh, yeah, Brian Williams was uh, the co-pilot. And, uh, yeah, they were running from the bullets that were flying around as they were pulling me out of the back of the, <laughs> out of the, back of the helicopter. So, um, yeah, Brian came back and uh, uh, things didn't go well for him, so, yeah. I just, so I just kept my mouth shut. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Brian yeah. Williams, what a dick. Okay. You were taking a break. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so you had the hard landing with Brian Williams on board. Yeah, Brian Williams, Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton actually ran out under gunfire to... Uh, sniper fire. Under, oh, sniper yeah, fire, that's right, to pull me out of the back of the helicopter. Wow. Yeah, it was amazing. Um, 
yeah, Brian was Brian was steadfast and uh, he got he got everything done, and then came home and reported on it. It was fantastic. <laughs> I mean, you know, people exaggerate stuff. I'm sure I've done that before, but you can't be on TV in front of how ten million people a night and just make shit up. You can't. Well, you can. <laughs> yeah, right. Politicians have been doing that for. Uh, you know, since TV's been around, but no, no one is your show, right? Yeah, now. can you imagine if Walter Cronkite did that? You know, he would. You know, now Brian Williams is on MSNBC at eleven PM at night, where he should be. Yeah, well, and I used to think Brian Williams was pretty cool. A fun fact about about uh, Brian Williams: you know, he has a crooked face. Oh, he does, and he's Cana- he's Canadian. Yeah, he's also Canadian. Him and Celine Dion. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really want to hang out with either of them. Mm. I didn't know he had a crooked face. Surprised though. he was on the chopper with you being Canadian. <laughs> I know. He probably didn't have a clearance. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Poor old Brian Williams. Okay. You know we'll probably have more viewers than Brian Williams has at 11 o'clock on MSNBC. Probably true. Yeah, and we're probably much more interesting. Yeah. I don't know why I'm so down on Brian Williams today. I haven't thought about that incident for, <laughs> for years, but oh well. <laughs> Poor old Brian. So, do, do you think... Are you familiar... Uh, science is not super clear on the way PTSD works. I'm speaking way out of school here. Mm. But th- there's the part of your brain which is the amygdala, right? If you say so. Which is what's responsible for anxiety, right? Maybe. Um, you so, make me very anxious with this line of questioning, but go no, ahead. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But. So it's um, it's sort of. Do you think your PTSD was was more of a product of the long term sort of conditioning of always being on guard, or do you think it was that one particular experience of the hard landing, as you say? No, I think it. But personally, uh, I think it's a uh, cumulative uh, issue. Uh, and that might not be right. I don't know. No one's ever told me that. That's just my, you know, there might have been a, you know, a key incident or something. I don't know. Uh, they sort of all roll into one eventually. Uh, but my gut tells me that it, it was, you know, it's a cumulative effect. That, so that would jive with the science of, of well, there anxiety. You go. Uh, I should have been a scientist. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a doctor. Well, your intuition is... is I, I think probably correct. Mm. Um, so did, did you feel like um, did you feel like the opioids helped? Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, they sort of dumb you down and numb things, and uh, uh, you know, I, I I was never on any of the you know the crazy ass stuff you know that we talked about a, a minute ago. Um, the you know the real addictive uh, opioids, um, but. It all has addictive control. Absolutely, it does. Five years. Well, I mean, if you look at something like in just in my case, sertraline, which you take for anxiety, you know, during the day, and you take three, I think it was three I was taking a day uh, of those, uh, I didn't like taking them. So sometimes I just stopped taking them. And, you know, my wife or whoever could would know within 24 hours if I'd stopped taking them. So whether it's addictive in that you're you know, addicted to it, then you have to have it for a high kind of deal or whether it's addictive in that you have to have it to function. 
uh, I think I was in obviously in that latter uh, boat. Yeah, I would argue people that are on medications like that, or, or whether it be benzodiazepines like Xanax, Ativan, whatever. It's 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 yeah, it's that kind of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. It it sort of mutes the sort of anxiety, mm-hmm. um, but in order to really solve that issue in a sort of long-term kind of manageable way, your brain actually sort of has to be retrained and rehabituated. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you're under medication like that, you don't ever really have the opportunity uh, to change yourself neurologically and your thought patterns because right. it's it's just pushed out of mind rather than being reconditioned. Right, I think that's a, that's right. I mean, you know, if you're going to the VA for you know PTSD, whatever you want to, you know, PTS, whatever, um, they don't, you know, you go and see a doctor once every six months if you're lucky, a psych or a behavioural health, as they like to call it now, a person once every six months if you can get in, uh, and you see them for twenty minutes maybe, and in that twenty minutes they're literally sitting there. Just looking typing at on chart more than they're looking at you. right, and just entering. You know, instead of taking fifty milligrams, we're going to put you up to hundred milligrams mm. because they don't have time to sit there because they've got fifty people they're seeing that mm. day. They don't have time to sit there and work out your problems. Was your you know was your mother mean to you as a child? Did you know you get your foot caught in a drain and that you know whatever? They've just got to fix it and get you out the door. And so I, it, it's it's a flawed system, but. You know they're doing the best they can. Most of them, they're they're overworked, and they have to. You know, by giving you an opioid, they fix a problem. Uh, you know, you're not going to go and do something stupid. Uh, so they fix they, they they fix the problem short term. Treat the symptoms. They treat the symptom. That's a good way to say it. Yeah. But you're not on that stuff anymore. Nope, haven't taken any of it since uh, January of uh, this year. Since and it I, was the dog CD, CBD that <laughs> That's what got me on the uh, <laughs> on the track to redemption. That's right. Yeah, and so and that's how we we uh, we started uh, with on duty CBD was we worked out you know what you know how to best do it and uh, we 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 our product is made is grown here by veterans uh, in Kentucky or within probably fifteen miles of Lexington. Uh, you know we've got. Army vets, we have former Marines uh, that, you know, mainly folks that were growing tobacco that now uh, grow hemp. Uh, we know, and funnily enough, you'll get a kick out of this, our hemp strain that we use is called Trump, <laughs> which is kind of funny. Um, it's not named after the president, I don't think. It's uh, it's just the, the initials of the strain and it's sort of TRP or something, so it just got called Trump. What? Not an expert on cannabis by any stretch. What differentiates one strain from another? Uh, you know what? I don't. I'm not a a, um, a hemp expert either. Obviously, uh, I, I I really don't know what the uh, you know the botanical you know roots are, if you like, uh, of one strain to another. But if you look at say. Uh, you know the Trump strain that we use predominantly. We don't use only that, but predominantly that, uh, and put it against you know three. You know you have three or four bushes of different uh, strains. You can tell that they're all different. You know one might be 
really heavy rooted and very thick stalks and grow straight up. You know, one might be short and bushy, uh, and they all have their pluses and minuses. We we use the trump strain because it's uh, it's very hardy. Uh, its its root system is pretty deep, so if you have bad weather, it doesn't blow over. Um, it's pretty resilient, uh, uh, and that's and you know it's, it's efficacious. So you know that's that's you know we we we've experimented with a whole bunch. In fact, uh, this last growing season, <laughs> out at Farmer Pat's place, we had I think four or five different strains in the ground uh, that we're just trying out, which will run tests over in the off season, as it were, to see you know if there's a better you know a better product that we can put out there. So, in your opinion. And in your experience, it's your use of the CBD that that allowed you to, with the opioids and anxiolytics yep. in the um, sleep aids. Um, yeah, no question. There's there's no question. Like, and I could anecdotally give you, gosh, a dozen, two dozen people that I personally know that are in the same situation that. Have st- and, you know, maybe they were taking one or two things, maybe they're taking ten things. I, I know guys that are taking, you know, over a dozen meds a day. Uh, and I'm not saying that CBD or on-duty CBD or any other CBD is going to be a cure-all for all that. But the way I look at it is if you can take CBD oil in the morning and at night and it gets you off two meds and you're on five, well... That's a win. That's a win, right? It's inexpensive uh, compared to drugs... Um, uh, it's non-habit forming. It's natural. Uh, I mean, it's 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 literally a weed out of the garden that we, you know. And I don't want to throw shade on any anyone or anything, but I think the figure is ninety-seven percent of CBD is uh, either mass-produced or imported from China. The stuff that you can buy here in the United States. We're not. We we grow it. We put it in the ground. We don't own the farms, but we have agreements with farmers, the veteran farmers. We have a farm manager, Kerry, that will go out and work with the farmers to make sure they're planting it correctly, make sure they're growing correctly, make sure it's not cross-pollinating, et cetera, et cetera. We then go and pick it. We then take it to our labs at uh, University of Kentucky. Your company picks it or the farmers? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, let me – yeah. So the farmers and their workers do it. We go out and get in the way. And help. So we had this year when we were at Farmer Pat's, for instance, I think there was eight or nine people from our group, from our company, uh, from the lab guy. Actually, it was probably more than that. Uh, from the lab guys to the scientists to myself to our salespeople, we were all out there picking, you know, cutting the hemp, throwing it on the on the uh, tobacco cart, and bring it into the. So we were out there. I think really we were getting in the way more than we helped, but. It was. It was. We, we just actually put a new uh, video up on our website that our friends at uh, Harrison Ward pulled together, and uh, uh, it's it's fantastic. So if you've got a second, go to the website. Is and I'm, this is a shameless plug, but <laughs> the the and I'm not doing this for the company necessarily. It's a really good three minute video on how the process works if you're doing it from seed to bottle. So it's ondutycbd.com, and I think it's under the. Um, about us tab or something. I don't remember. It only went up today or yesterday. And it's a three-minute video and it shows you literally uh, we had a guy, Scott uh, Moore, go out and videotape uh, or film everything from six months ago when we're putting it in the ground to when it got crushed up and put in a bottle. So it's a really – and it's only three minutes long. It's a really 
it's super easy to watch. It's kind of fun, but it explains what the process is if you're vertically integrated like we are. So we literally plant it, harvest it, make it at UK here in the, in the, at University of Kentucky campus. We bottle it up ourselves on campus, and then we send it out to the folks that are using it. So, what's the University of Kentucky role? Uh, nothing. We just um, nothing in aside from we uh, have space in there. Um, oh, we 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 lease labs off them. Gotcha. So, but it's it's pretty cool being on campus, and so a lot of our uh, kids that are uh, help us in the lab, like what we call the lab rats. You know, the guys that fill the bottles, that put the labels on the bottles, that uh, you know do, help with the process, the making of the stuff. Are students at UK? We've got guys there that are marketing students we've got rotc guys uh also you know from science guys all that are in that help us make it's really cool and uh, they're all super good 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 folk and like we've got a a a young guy that's uh helping us on how he started sort of as a i guess he still is he's a he's the world's uh, lowest paid and most underappreciated intern (laughs) zach uh and he's like an integral part of our organization now doing our finances because he's doing his mba and Taylor, who's our chief scientist, just sort of corralled him in and said, "Hey, can you have a look at this?" And he's still there. You know, he's a we call him the you know the the underpaid intern. Uh, and in, you know, he's he's a great guy and he's a great asset to the company. And but you know, it's all because we're at on the UK campus. So uh, we do a lot of our testing at UK as well. So everything we do is we test internally at the, uh, at the at the school uh, six times or five times. I always get in trouble for that let's say six times, which means it's probably five, but nonetheless. Uh, and then we send it out for third-party testing uh, to Louisville and get a, a, a lab in Louisville to test it. So the purpose of the testing is to ensure that the THC content doesn't get too high mainly? Or? Yeah, I mean, the, yes, that, that's the primary reason to make sure it's under 0.3%. For the record, THC is the, the part of hemp or marijuana that might get a person high. Yeah, so if, if you've got hemp... You know, so there's cannabis as the plant and then there's marijuana and there's hemp. Right. So marijuana is very high in THC. Right. Hemp uh, is, is much, 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 much. It's infinitesimal in right. comparison. So, you know, you can, uh, you know, our, the, the product we put out I think has 0.18 or 2% THC. In our, the, the limit's in our like 0.03, right? 0.3, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're, we're well under... Um, but, you know, that's a process and that's where Kerry, our farm manager, is out there making sure that, you know, because, you know, if the, if the state comes out, which the state comes and tests at farm at the farms, if the state comes out and, you know, you're over the legal limit, you have to burn it to the ground. Yeah. Like literally burn it to the ground. expensive. Heck yeah, it's expensive. Yeah. So we're involved in that process all the way through so as to make sure we don't get to that situation. You know, Alabama, for instance, you know, they just... Uh, legalized the or, or permitted the growing of it for you know industrial hemp. Uh, so all these people went and just threw hundreds of acres of of hemp into the ground. They don't know what the hell to do with it, and they don't know how to police it. They don't know how to grow it properly. So all of a sudden, all these guys are growing hemp, but it's point six percent. It's you know whatever, and they can't use it. And they've got to burn it, and that's hundred acres of hemp's really expensive. Yeah. Um. So, uh, you know, it, it's it's a it's a really good process. You know, if, if you're not going to buy our stuff, if you're not going to buy on duty, uh, which I encourage everyone to do, of course, uh, just make sure that what you're buying is in the very least made in the United States. And if possible, 
you know, be able to determine where it's from because, you know, you have a lot of these folks that do mass... Most CBD companies are marketing companies, right? They just go to a big factory and they buy the stuff in a white box and they put their label on it and they do some glitzy marketing and sell it. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that product necessarily except you don't know where the actual hemp has come from. You know, maybe it's from Oregon and maybe it's from Colorado, but also it might be from Afghanistan or China. And, you know, if you've ever been to China, uh, the farms are next to the same factories that are making Apple iPhone batteries. That's a lot of heavy metals and pollutants that are in the air that are going into your hemp. And that's what, you know, look at this. They're not tested the same way. They're not tested at all. Yeah. So look at this this whole thing with the... The vaping and people dying, you know, from vaping. We looked at making a vape product because it's actually, interestingly enough, the best way to 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 take CBD. Uh, but we didn't do it. We're like, meh, not not really, not really the image we want to put out. It just just wasn't our thing. Anyhow, that bore fruit, uh, you know, with all this, you know, people dying from vaping. They're dying from vaping because they're buying the stuff off the street. Illegal, illicit marijuana. We've tested stuff that has yeah. had paint thinner in it, butane, because there's, it's, these guys are just getting whatever, marijuana, putting it in a bit of uh, cod liver oil or olive oil or castor oil or, or paint thinner and selling it to you. And, of course, you're gonna, if you put that into your, you know, breathe it, breathe it you're going to die. Yeah. And that's what's happening. So, you know, there's people making some terrific vape products uh, that work, but that's dead, for, pardon the pun, that's dead for the next few years because that, that isn't going to bounce back. And, you know, and that's a risk too with the, the oils. Just, it's, I just always say to people, just think about what you're putting in, into your body, right? You don't go and buy your medicine from the gas station. You don't go and buy your heart meds from the gas station. Don't buy your CBD from the gas station. Sure, it's thirty dollars, and sure it says, "Oh, it's got twenty thousand milligrams of CBD." That's all bullshit, because one, it's from China; two, you don't know if it's got any CBD in it at all, and you certainly don't know what the carrier is or how they produced it. So, if you wouldn't buy your heart medication there, don't buy your CBD there. I wouldn't buy a phone charger from the gas station, much less right that you're going to put in your body. But that's what people do. Yeah, it's true. It's- they think it's cheap. But you get in in this, you actually get what you pay for. Yeah. But having said that, just because it's expensive doesn't mean it's good either. It uh, you know it's just a marketing. There's you know if you see CBD that says you know twenty thousand milligrams of CBD, or that's just a lie because that's almost impossible. I think that is impossible. I could ask our scientists, but that's just impossible. I mean, we do fifteen hundred milligrams, our strongest one. Uh, we could probably push that up to three thousand if we you know, wanted to. We don't need you don't need to. Um, but if you know you're saying ten thousand, twenty thousand, fifty thousand, you see we see this stuff, and we test all this stuff, and it's just not true. You know, it's just not. And some of the you know we we've tested well-known, expensive brands that are full of chemicals and and pollutants. And you know, if it's CBD to be grown legally or hemp has to be. Uh, organically grown. You can't use fertiliser, you can't use any pesticides, anything like that. We had one little batch that came in that had a trace amount of pesticides on it because obviously it had the farm, we'd bought a, got a bunch from this farmer, but obviously some pesticides had come in from the environment and we couldn't use it. We had to, you know, but I'm sure someone used it. We didn't. 
But, you know, uh, just, all I'm saying is just be be careful about what you put in your body. If it's If it sounds too good to be true, like most things it is. And you're, it's tested by University of Kentucky, you grow yours here in Lexington. Mm-hmm. Um, Grown by veterans here in Lexington. And it's a veteran-owned company because you own mm-hmm. the company. Correct. Well, I own a bunch of it, uh, um, but I have a bunch of uh, uh, really great partners. Uh, we have one uh, PhD chemist, or, or I'm sorry, scientist uh, at UK, uh, and an, another uh, uh, Taylor Bright, and then Matt Dawson, who's a... Um, a precision medicine doctor here in um, in Kentucky. Uh, he actually owns a Kentucky castle as well. That's wow. his, that's his sideline. So he's he's one of our partners, and uh, uh, we have a bunch of other doctors, MDs that are partners in the business. Just to be absolutely clear, so you you were in Alabama when you first tried CBD, and it came Correct. in the parking lot. Mm-hmm. No, no, Piggly Wiggly. P- I'm sorry, Piggly Wiggly parking gosh, lot. Gosh, gosh. Yeah. You're like Brian Williams. You're making shit up. <laughs> You're making shit up now. And it didn't help you, but then you tried the real thing for you, and then it did help you. Yes. Which, from someone else. Yes. And because of the impact that it had on you, and the sort of evolving cultural and regulatory climate here, you said, um, "How do I make this stuff?" Right. How do I get? I wasn't going to take something I didn't know where it was yeah. from. So historically, before um, reefer madness and before marijuana and hemp were um, banned in the United States, Kentucky was the biggest hemp producing state. Right, a mm-hmm. long time ago. Yep. Um, so you figured that out, and you decided to come to Kentucky based on. Um, it was close. It was close. <laughs> yeah. The, but the climate and the regulatory climate here, right? Funnily enough, you know, um, Kentucky, you know, people from outside of Kentucky kind of scoff at this, but Kentucky leads the country in regulation and management of hemp and CBD. Uh, and that McConnell is behind that, you know. Jamie Comer. And, right, yeah. And they've they've been, you know, and the state has been super helpful and, uh, you know, and that's not, that's for good reason because it's a, it's, you know, tobacco's died in the arse uh, and this is a much better cash crop than tobacco ever was, uh, and if and I believe uh, it has you know longevity as well because it's only going to you know at on duty we're we're pushing for regulation of the industry because what happens at that point is all those cowboys that are in the industry now selling stuff at gas stations at the farmers market all that sort of stuff uh, it will be illegal to sell that stuff because they won't be able to put out their COA reports. They won't be able to attest to where it's from. They won't be able to give you any of those details. I mean, you can scan our bottle and you can... We haven't got to this point yet, but we're working toward... You'll be able to see who the actual farmer was that grew the hemp that is in that bottle. Uh, Right now, you can see all our lab reports and everything. Uh, Most companies don't do that. You call our customer service line, you get a registered nurse or a certified medical assistant that picks up the phone and will talk you through any of your questions. No, other people don't do that. So talk to me about, I hear a lot of, it seems like I, I look at different CBD oil companies and I hear debate between CBD oil companies about their extraction method. Mm-hmm. What What is your extraction method? Um, and right. what are the advantages of what you do? You know, that's, that's a question that's above my pay grade by and large. But, you know, we use, uh, 
Most companies use a mass-produced CO2 method. Uh, the problem with the CO2 method is all the good stuff in there, you know, your fats and your terpenes and that sort of thing, get burnt off when you, you know, these big companies will literally dump all their product into a hopper, push a button, and out pops their CBD oil. We use a patented ethanol extraction, uh, which is, if you likened it to bourbon, we literally, um, um, it's it's like a small batch bourbon versus Jim Beam punching out, you know, vats and vats of stuff. So, uh, it's a process which is very manual. It costs us a lot more money uh, and the machines are much smaller. So it's literally like making small batch. In fact, it almost looks like a glass still the way way it's done with the ethanol extraction. So all the terpenes are left in there, the fats are left in there. And that's from a when we use our pure version, which, you know, which has the THC in it, that is, uh, I think that's the good stuff. We're, we're very uh, particular about how we do our extraction. Taylor Bright and the team at, uh, at the lab do an amazing job. So as a stoner would call what you do, uh, your CBD product is full spectrum? They would. It's full spectrum. And we also have a, and I didn't bring any with me, but we also have a, a THC-free version, which has absolutely no THC. So we just, it's just another step of the process and it removes all the THC. So our, our full spectrum uh, our pure product, as we call it, uh, has a slightly earthy taste. You know, people would call it grassy. I don't like to say grassy, but earthy taste. Uh, whereas, uh, and it has a colour to it. it. It looks kind of dirty. Uh, whereas you use our pure version, which is just, you know, it's like microfiltered, if that's the simplest way to put it. Uh, everything's taken out of it from a TA, like it's, there's zero THC in it. So, uh, and we've, we, we've Taylor and the team have have worked that now, so it has no taste and no colour. So we we have a lot of folks now that use that for cooking, putting in cocktails, all that sort of stuff, uh, because it has you know the taste doesn't create an issue for you know uh, for moving forward. You know to the taste profile doesn't affect anything. So um, it's it's been a uh, it's been a learning process, but you know we built the THC free version. For the military, and you know, as I said at the start, I wanted to create a brand that people could trust, and uh, folks that wouldn't normally even know about CBD could take without having any issues. So uh, that's what we've done with the THC-free version. You know, if you're a serving cop or you're driving a bus or you're serving the military, you can take it, and you're not going to fail a piss test. Well, and if you're marketing a product to public servants police officers military that's important oh it's absolutely important we we have we have some uh, retailers uh that say have a gun range in you know madison wisconsin uh for instance they and their whole clientele is cops they only sell our thc free version that's all they stock they don't have anything else so it's been a very important component uh to our to our business i think that's something that separates you it is. It is. So we make both. Yeah. A lot of folks don't do that. We have pure and THC free and uh, folks seem to really, really dig it. It it, it means everybody can, can get on board. All right. Let's take another break. I think what uh, we were talking about was uh, you do have a THC free version. Yes, sir. 
So uh, the uh, THC-free, uh, on-duty THC-free is aimed at first responders, folks that serve their communities, whether they're teachers, bus drivers, nurses, cops, uh, military, Air National Guard, whatever. If you serve your community and you're worried about failing a piss test, we advise you to take THC-free version. And when you look at our packaging, it's the it's the blue box, not the sort of grey-green box. But, you know, by and large, if you take real uh, uh, CBD that is, you know, produced and tested properly, it is highly, highly unlikely you would ever pop on a piss test. There's a, a minute chance you will, so that's why we have the THC-free. So, Because the benefits to CBD for people that are in those high-stress, high-pressure environments all the time is amazing. And we wanted to make sure at On Duty that folks that would normally not be exposed to it uh, get the benefit of it. And that's, that's literally why we started the company. To, to help those guys. I, I think a lot of people are probably afraid, in addition to the drug testing element, um, people may be nervous about the legal status of CBD. Right. Uh, what, what is the legal status of CBD? So CBD, uh, as of the 2018 Farm Bill in December 2018, is federally legal in every single state of the union. So it's CBD uh, under 0.3%, you know, 0.3%, is legal uh, in every state of the union, in all 50 states. Where the issues have been in the past and they're becoming less and less is local jurisdictions. So you get, you know, um, you know, uh, Johnny the Sheriff in Texas uh, that's like, oh, well, you can't do that, boy. That's, uh, you know, that's your take on marijuana. Yeah. Well, that's not marijuana, you idiot. Yeah. It's CBD. It's made from hemp. It's totally different. Yeah. Uh, but... You know, it's an education process. So you're you're seeing when there is an incident, and you they're literally becoming less and less frequent by the day. Uh, but when in the past, when there has been incidents, that's been on a local level. Like that woman, that grandmother that got arrested at Disney World for having CBD oil in her purse when she went through the what? metal detector. Oh yeah, this was this was national news. I missed that. Yeah, they they arrested a grandmother like she was 80 or something, that was at, at Disney World with her grandkids for having a bottle of CBD oil in her purse that her chiropractor had told her to get. Uh, and it was a huge shit fight, a big kerfuffle, and eventually the state attorney general in Florida is like, uh, no, you know, this is a federally legal substance. There's, But there was an overzealous local, uh, you know, I guess you know, law enforcement officer uh, in whatever county that is, and they arrested her. She got off everything. And this is the thing. Everybody that's been prosecuted or, uh, you know, uh, taken down the road from my understanding have all uh, been exonerated because it it's obviously a huge pain in the butt, but it's 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 legal. And what you're seeing now, you know, Texas even, and, and Florida too, even a couple of months ago, there were still state statutes which made... Uh, CBD, you know, having CBD, uh, you know, against state law. But just in the last couple of months, that's all been overturned. So what you're seeing is state legislatures are finally catching up to the federal uh, farm bill of 2018. And the FDA uh, just this week or last week uh, have released more guidelines and and, uh, um, uh, guidance on 
uh, CBD and things like that, and and it just reinforced uh, its legality. And I think you'll see over the next, you know, in another my my guest is in another six months we won't even that this won't even be a conversation. Uh, I think there's only two states now uh, that have laws on the books which uh, uh, ban anything which is a derivative of cannabis, and that's Idaho and South Dakota. Uh, and even in South Dakota, for instance, the state legislature passed you know a bill saying you know CBD is fine to sell and manufacture in, in South Dakota, but the governor, who's you know apparently got a stick up her ass about something, uh, vetoed the bill, right? So, you know, we were going to go to the Sturgis bike rally, uh, you know, to, to spread the good word about on duty. And uh, someone said, oh, I think it's not state legal in, you know, that you might have an issue. So I called a, uh, I think it was the county, uh, whatever the county was, the county prosecutor of the county, um, uh, whatever he was, uh, who was very helpful. And he was like, look, we won't prosecute you here in the state. But if the state attorney general is, you know, trying to make a point, he might. You'll get off, but it'll be a big pain in the butt. My advice is not to come till next year. And we're like, that's good advice. This is in South Dakota? South Dakota, yeah. And there's like, you know, there's 100,000 bikies there doing a lot worse things than taking CBD, no I can kidding. tell you. So, but he was a great guy, the, the, the guy I talked to, the, the, the county prosecutor, and he's like, look, the sheriff's not going to ping you, we're not going to ping you, you'll be 100% fine in town. But you never know. So we just, you know, uh, went a cautionary route and just didn't do it. Are there any other states that have been resistant? Uh, just South Dakota and Idaho, and I don't know why. I mean, honestly, if you look at the population density, they should be one Dakota anyway. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's like all those little states up on the northeast thing. Why is there like seven states yeah. up there? It yeah. should just be called Liberal yeah. City and just be done with yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Liberal Arama. Give them 57 electoral votes. I know, <laughs> like twenty-four senators for like five hundred square foot, and uh, you know they're all just bowling along. Like literally, there's a senator for a hundred acres up there. Oh, yeah, two senators. What is that about? I have a farm like that. I know you could be a senator. Yeah, I, could, I could have a senator, which would be even better. If you were in New Hampshire, you would have your own senator. <laughs> yeah, it's so absurd, but uh, you know, I, I don't know. But, um, yeah, so, look, the the, the, the legal thing, and, and, look, even in these states, like if you go to South Dakota or Idaho, you can go in to a pharmacy and buy it. Right. right. You can buy CBD all over the place. Yeah, I mean, I see it in pharmacies here. Oh, every, like, oh, look, everywhere, you know, it, it's, you know, on duty just because of the, uh, you know, our pedigree, where we come from, you know, a lot of our uh, retailers, the people that, you know, sell it for us are gun stores and um, outdoor stores and people that sell canoes and ammunition and hunting supplies and sleeping bags. And, you know, that really, uh, you know, if those guys can sell it and they're selling guns, for goodness sake, um, everyone, in in 48 states in the Union, you're not going to have an issue anywhere, right? None. Like you can fly with it now, you can take it across state lines, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, and I know you can fly with it because we fly with it all the time. So, and we fly with lots of it. So, uh, yeah, there, there's no issues now. It's, 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 CBD is becoming so mainstream now uh, that, you know, even if the government wanted to, it would be almost impossible to put the genie back in the bottle. Uh, that being said, 
uh, we're very much in favour of regulating the industry because right now you can get a product, as we talked about before, which might have been processed with paint thinner, which might be suspended in some, you know, uh, fish frying oil that's come out of a, you know, <laughs> come out of a bodega somewhere. Uh, you don't know, right? So the minute it becomes regulated, all that goes out the window and those people won't be able to produce CBD anymore and the retailers won't be able to sell it. So, so where the risky sort of uh, ingredients in CBD will come into play is in the extraction method, right? Yeah, primarily. Whereas mm-hmm. you all have a, a, a – specifically you have a patented ethanol extraction patent, method. Patent ethanol, yeah. It's a, we curate it. We uh, – I don't know what the bourbon term is, but it literally would – if it was bourbon, it would be a small batch bourbon and that's how we make it. And – you know, people are like, well, you can't scale that. But, yeah, we can. We just buy another machine and, yeah. and another person and that's how we do it. But it, it's more expensive for us. It takes a little bit longer. But the product is as good as you'll get anywhere in the country. Like we, we'd put our product up against you – know, and this is another thing. You'll get our box, like our bottle of oil, and you might get one that tastes like X and then the next bottle of the same product – might have a slightly different taste profile. That's because the flour that we take the oil off might have got more water or more sun or been picked a week later or whatever. We don't do anything to our product. We take the flour off the, you know, we, we process it and how it comes out of the ground and gets crushed up is how it goes into the bottle. So we don't put flavours in it. We don't make it taste like candy floss or fairy floss, whatever the heck you call it here. Uh, it doesn't taste like peppermint. It tastes like the plant that we we took out of the ground and that's really important and you know people are like oh well it works great we just wish it tasted better well you wish you know your cough mixture tasted better too mm. but it's not candy you know and that's what we tell people it's not and you're candy. not the starbucks of cbd oil right, either. right. And there's plenty of those people that you know yeah have fanciful names and you've got to wear you know uh sandals and eat granola before <laughs> you take it that's not us right if you want to eat granola take another brand it's uh I actually grow eat granola. That's uh, that's probably a bad example. But if you're going to smother yourself in patchouli oil, go and uh, buy someone else's stuff. I'm more of a nug chomper kind of guy. <laughs> no, that's good. Patchouli's not my thing. No, but it just stinks. <laughs> Reminds me of San Francisco, and I don't like that. <laughs> oh, poop on the streets of San Francisco. Oh I got a friend uh, that I've known for many years. He's got a um, cybersecurity company. And he's been based, he's lived in San Francisco for his whole life. Uh, he was a military guy, an uh, African-American guy that I served with. And he's got this cyber company. He's been based in San, like downtown San Francisco. Just last year, he uh, uh, relocated to the, California somewhere. He's like, I can't put up with the crime, can't put up with the homelessness, can't put up with... He said, it's always been expensive. That's what it, what it is. Mm. But I'm not going to deal with the homelessness and the feces on the street yep. and the needles and, you know, these aggressive people panhandling trying to get my money. And he just gave up one day and he's like, we're out. And you, I think you're seeing that more and more uh, in places like San Francisco, which I saw a funny meme yesterday, I think, on Instagram or somewhere where I was working. Uh, you know, I think I spent half my time on Instagram. <laughs> uh, and it was... Uh, and it said, um, uh, gosh, it said something about San Francisco and electricity. And now that I've just started to say that, I forgot what the hell it was. But nonetheless, I'm not a big fan of San Francisco. Yeah. So uh, for the record, 
you and I, I'm not affiliated with On Duty CBD in any way. Right. I don't have any money from you coming on the podcast here. No, you Um, won't get any either. No. Because we're cheap bastards. That's too bad. Yeah. (laughs) Right. (laughs) No, no. My objective here with the podcast always has been to highlight, um, I feel a lot of gratitude for living in central Kentucky. It's beautiful. Uh, the culture here and what we have here is incredible, but we also have um, entrepreneurs here like nowhere else in the world. Um, and in my opinion, our music scene is like Seattle 1992. Uh, it's really cool. Uh, you kind I, of expect REM to pop up somewhere. Yeah, no, I think we have. I think we have some of the best artists um, in the world creating music anywhere. And t- to me, I mean, someone like you, you're creating a product who who is. CBD oil has a fairly new market because mm-hmm. it's, it, the legal status of it is fairly recent. I mean, the Farm right. Bill, that happened in 2018. No, not even a year ago. Right. And right. then he, and I've got this opportunity to have this person here um, who served in the Australian Royal Navy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have all this experience. So uh, if, if we could do something for our listeners uh, with respect to your CBD product, th- that would be Amazing. I, I know you mentioned to my friend Evan something about a promo code for the podcast. Yeah, I think we should uh, we should do something for folks that are listening. Like uh, we could do like a 20% discount uh, for uh, folks uh, that listen to the podcast. What would be a good um, – so if they go to the website, we just need to get them to put in a pro- – we can make this up when we get offline. <laughs> what would be a good uh, – a good promo code. So it's it's. I, tr- I tried to title the podcast as broadly as possible, mm. and I just call it the Kentucky Life Podcast because I want to just have anyone who's interesting on here. Yeah. So if, if we could just do promo code KLP. You notice I'm writing this down because I'm going to have to f- do this when I get <laughs> here. And we'll do a 20% discount. So if you do promo code KLP, you get 20% off uh, right. any on-duty CBD product. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I know some of this stuff with growing it here – locally and having your own manufacturing process, it's not cheap to make? No, it's not. And, you know, we if we did the bulk extraction method that, you know, uh, using um, CO2 and all that nasty stuff, it would be a lot cheaper to do, but we don't do that. Uh, you know, it's not saying that we're, you know, these uh, wonderful, you know, caring folks, which we are. Of sure course. you are. Yeah, of course we are. <laughs> um, but, you know, the... We'd prefer to spend a few extra cents a bottle and make sure it's really, really good because the people we're giving it to, or the people I want to use it, are people I've served with or the people that are serving or have served. And I want to make sure they are getting the best product they can. And, you know, my ultimate goal, and whether it's our product or whether it's someone else's, I actually really don't care at this point, I want to have CBD accessible through the VA, through the Veterans Affairs hospital system, health system. That'll do two things. One, it'll get people off opioids uh, like it did with me. And as I said before, if you're taking seven, this gets you off two, you know, off the two things you're taking for sleep and nightmares, fantastic. It's two less you're taking. The other part of it is it'll save the federal government so much money. I mean, you think if you're taking, I don't know how much a box of pills costs, but a month, if I'm taking seven different opioids, that's costing someone somewhere a lot of money. Yeah. So if we can get even a fraction of folks that are uh, open to it or recommended or, you know, the, the doctors, the psychologists start being able to prescribe it uh, or recommend it, it you know, it's, there's no downside to it for the government. 
particularly, uh, you know, it, it's just a matter of, you know, the science or the research catching up to the anecdotal, you know, um, positioning. Uh, and there's, you know, there's research out there, but there's not enough to satisfy the feds, if you like. I, 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 that being said, I think we're probably only a year or so away from it uh, being that mainstream that the VA will be giving it out. And I hope they do. The sooner the better. I, look, you can go into the VA, and I know it hasn't didn't happen to me uh, because they know where I work, but friends of mine uh, have gone to the VA and the doctors off the record will say, just go and go down to blah, blah and get some CBD. You need this strength. And that happens all the time. Well, and in general, I think your argument in the meantime would be just try it. And it speaks for itself, right? And, and as I said before, even if they don't take hours, if they don't take on duty, take something that's made in America and try and preferably find something that's made in Kentucky. Because, uh, you know, there's a lot of shit made in Kentucky as well, but there's also <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of stuff that's really good made here. So uh, just be... All I tell people is be really mindful. If if the CBD you're going to buy doesn't have um, third-party testing, they don't put the COA, which is the testing reports, the, the uh, chemical reports, uh, online or you can't see them, you don't know the the um, pedigree of that product, don't buy it, buy something else. Because if there's 10 products, eight won't have that, but two will. Ours is one, and, you know, there's, you know, there's, we're not the only ones, but... Just if it's not ours, just make sure it's something that you know where it's from. That's all, because there's some great products out there. So that that will be my uh, that would be my advice to anyone that's thinking of trying it. But if you want twenty percent off yours, if you want twenty percent off, use the code which I'm going to set up KLP. when we get off here. <laughs> KLP for twenty percent off, which yes. stands for Kentucky Live Podcast. And how long is the promo code going to be good for? Let's do it from. Well, it's a podcast. We'll just keep it up there for a while. Okay. Cool. I think that works. Perfect. That's easiest because someone might not listen to this podcast for like a month. It's so true. We'll just keep it up there until I think about it and I'll delete it. Yeah. <laughs> until people start being ungrateful. Yeah, until people aren't appreciating that twenty percent off, then we'll, then we'll delete it. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. If Rand Paul tries to use it, I'm going to block him. Hey, man. He just shouldn't have been a jerk to me that day. He was, he was um, first term was on the Foreign Relations Committee, wasn't he? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He was probably just having an off day. We all have off days. <laughs> but I bear I bear grudges. I I'm not sure I wasn't there that day because that was when I was in his office. That's that God. That was gosh. That was seven or eight years ago now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've got to say I do like the touch of uh, having Fosters in your studio for me today. Well, I'm a kid of the '90s, right? Mm. So. When I was growing up, Foster's was Australian for beer. It is Australian for beer, <laughs> and you've got to throw another shrimp on the barbie. I do remember, though, when Foster's was made in Canada, which was closer to being made in Australia than here because we both still had the Queen, right? So it was like the Queen was making the beer. That's not right. No. I love the Queen. I think she's awesome. So how is CBD regulated? Is it regulated like a supplement? Yes. Uh, uh, we, well, yeah, right now it is. Mm-hmm. So is um, is there anyone making CBD up to a GMP standard? You know what? I don't know the answer to that. I believe so. Yeah. I mean, everything we do, uh, we do to medical-grade uh, uh, production. So all of our equipment, uh, all of our uh, production uh, uh, protocols, 
are all medical grade. So uh, we don't have any uh, we don't have any shortcuts in our because we've built on duty uh, up to the point where when regulation does hit, you already you don't need to do anything. We'll still be above any any regulation they can possibly bring in. So. Uh, and that's what we, you know, we set out to do that from the very start. It was like, well, you don't want to be half pregnant. You just, just go the go the whole hog and uh, and do it because regulation is is inevitable. It has to happen. They can't leave this unregulated. So by by setting ourselves up initially, you know, there was a a bit of heartache with the cost and setting things up because more expensive to do that. But long term, it's going to pay off, particularly when a lot of these cowboys get. Uh, you know, get shivved and have to have to move out. Uh, so we'll see, but that that's that's the plan. Are there any sort of trade organizations or anything like within the uh, hemp industry that self-regulate right now? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of uh, you know, uh, you know, pay for play kind of organizations out there uh, that you know, if you pay these guys ten thousand dollars a year, you get the Kentucky or the the hemp industry stamp of approval or mm. the or the hemp, you know, duck lip stamp, whatever they call it. <laughs> There's a whole bunch. You, if you pony up the cash, you get their little stamp and you can put it on the box. It doesn't mean jack. It doesn't mean anything. It's all marketing BS. You know, people go, oh, this one's like approved by the, by the Hemp Growers Association of North America. Well, that's not a thing. Someone <laughs> just made that up. And they sell the stamp and you put it on your box. So we haven't done any of that nonsense. You know, we just grow our own stuff, put it in the bottle and uh, hope people like it. Okay. Well, I, you know, I can speak from my own experience. I, I have tried your, uh, the 1500 milligram. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can, can definitely feel something's going on there with that. Oh, yeah, uh, that, that's our in strongest terms of pain, stuff. For sure. Yeah. Um, and uh, I understand that product isn't cheap, but uh, it works. No, I mean it's it's not, but uh, this really is a uh, you know we come in sort of in the middle of the market price wise, uh, and I think what you'll find there'll be a lot of uh, drop off in the market, just as you know people just won't you know they'll go and get a white label and they'll say oh yeah I'll get a thousand bottles and they won't be able to sell it so so you, I think you'll see a, a, a culling of the market mm. and the the good you know it'll be like bourbon right. You can go. You can go into the into you know into Total Wine or into you know Liquor Barn or whatever, and you can buy a bottle of bourbon for eight bucks. It's going to taste like ass. Uh, you can go and buy a bottle of bourbon for a hundred bucks. It's going to be amazing. Uh, and it's exactly the same with CBD. So while the taste isn't the issue with the CBD, it's the efficacy and how it's made. But it's exactly the same premise. You know, you you spend the eight dollars and you get the you know the crappy stuff from the gas station. You spend the hundred bucks uh, at your pharmacy or at your gun store or wherever it might be, and uh, it works. And what we're seeing, I guess, is the best illustration. So we have a five hundred milligram, a thousand milligram, and a fifteen hundred. Pardon me. Obviously, the five hundred is the cheapest. So what we found were people would come in and you know their first order, they'd be trying it out. They'd buy the the less expensive one, the five hundred milligram. And then they'd invariably do, like I did, exactly the same. They'll do research, they'll read up, and they'll say, okay, well, 500 milligram, 1,500 milligram, why don't I? And then they're coming in for their second order and they're getting the 1,000 or the 1,500 because it's, you know, it works better for them. Although I I know people that take the 500 
They don't need anything else, right, for whatever their issue is and whatever they're working with it for. Uh, and But people are becoming literally every day more educated on how it works, you know, what would work for them, what wouldn't work for them uh, and that sort of thing. So that's really encouraging. And, and the other thing is, you know, we have a customer service line, people call up and when we first set it up, you know, seven or eight months ago, the calls were, how do I take it? You know, what's the difference? Our calls have dropped off probably by 70%. Wow. We put a few more bits of detail on the website and stuff, but it's because people are self-educating about CBD. Wow. It's, it's been amazing, the drop-off in, in just regular calls. And we love when people call up because, you know, a big part of our process is, and, and I think the, all the legitimate CBD companies, a big part of the, the business model is educating public about cbd so we love it when you know our customer service you know we have a, a, a certified medical assistant rn that answers the phone and they love it when they get the old folks will call up and they go you know i've got this arthritis i can't sleep and they'll talk to them for an hour and talk them through it and they'll put the order in for them if they want and the our um, our folks you know come in at the end of the day and like oh i talked to this old lady in you know michigan and she bought it for the second time she wondered if it was different if she bought the 1500 and so we've got this little family of folks that are now sort of coalescing around the product which is fantastic for us we can't sure and 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 invariably a lot of them are retired military retired cops retired nurses uh at that you know when they're in that age bracket uh what i love is when you know you've got We'll have a, a an older person, like a you know, in their seventies, eighties, will call up and say, you know, my daughter is or my granddaughter at college has been using your CBD, and she told me I should use it, but I don't, you know, I think she's been smoking pot. And, uh, that's why she's using it. She's trying to get me high, and we go, no, this is what it's for, and we talk them through it. That happens more than you can realize. And uh, then they try it, and they call back, and we have a lot of people call back and say, oh, I've been using it, and this has happened, and this has happened. It's amazing. So you have the oil, which is sublingual. Um, yep. What are some of the other applications other than vaping you've seen to be efficacious and you've decided to offer with On Duty? Yeah, so one of my favorite things, because Betsy Ross, who's my Doberman, who's also the spokes dog for On Duty, mm. uh, takes On Duty K9, which is our pet version. So I'm going to leave you this for Slash. Okay. And what you do with it is uh, we use it mainly for Betsy Ross when we're travelling and she's in the car. We just give her some with a breakfast. She gets nauseous? She gets a bit – she just doesn't like the car. And this just calms her down a little bit. So, uh, you know, you use – she's a big dog, so we use a full dropper in the morning before we travel. And it, 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 Fourth of July is another good example when there's fireworks right. and stuff and a lot of dogs having anxiety. And we actually made this primarily – well, originally, I wasn't thinking about, you know, pets – we made it for the working dogs and, you know, uh, uh, you know, the canines that are, you know, cops and bomb dogs and that sort of stuff. But then people started buying it, wanting it for their pets. And we're like, okay. So that's been really popular and we, we like that a lot. Uh, and then we have a bunch of topicals that, you know, are, you roll on. So, you know, this is our pinpoint product. So if you've got arthritis or something, uh, you, you know, this has got a little rollerball and you can really get into the joints and do that sort of thing. Uh, so that that and that you can feel that immediately. This is a, a lotion, which is a broad application kind of deal. So you can put this 
uh, you know, you can do a massage with this. You could do, you know, just put it all over your hands. Uh, you know, you could. I'm not going to say what else you could do with that. <laughs> I'm just. I was going to go there, and I'm just not going to do it. And then this is our newest thing: is our gum. It's called Reload Gum. And the whole idea with this, uh, we haven't uh, uh, made for it. We we don't have the capability. This is the only thing we don't manufacture in house, but we provide the CBD for mm. it. So it's made by a pharmaceutical company uh, in Maryland. Uh, we're one of I think only three companies that have a gum like this. Uh, same stuff that uh, Tiger Woods chews and uh, golfers chew, and well, not ours, but it's made by the same people. Um, maybe Tiger, if you're listening. Uh, I'll send you a free box. <laughs> so I'll, I'll uh, just... Tiger, just... it's promo code KLP <laughs> yeah. for 20% off. Now, that would be funny <laughs> if, if Tiger was listening and, and we got an order from Tiger Woods for a box of gum. I wouldn't let him take the 20% because he could afford the whole... He could afford it. Yeah, um, you're I'm, right. Yeah. But Tiger, if you're listening, it's there. <laughs> um, so, but we made the gum originally, you know, we're thinking of guys, you know, cops... You're out in your patrol car. You might be taking your oil, you know, for your anxiety or whatever in the morning, and then you just need a hit. This has got 10 milligrams CBD in it. I take about two of those a day um, during the day just to keep your equilibrium up. The good thing with CBD is it stays. It's like a, you can't take too much. Mm-hmm. What you don't use, your body expels. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll I'll take the 1500 morning and night, and then during the day I'll use. Um, I'll take some gum and, and obviously I use the topicals all over the place. We've used we've had people call in about the topicals that have uh, used it for poison ivy, that huh. have used it for all sorts of stuff like muscle strains. Um, Evan, who's a you know a mutual friend of ours, you know his mom had a had a broken ankle, uh, and which she had what's it called fused or whatever it's called, mm-hmm. uh, and was in pain, and she's been using the the lotion, and it's. You know, she's, according to Evan, now bouncing around the house again. So That's amazing. It's We hear that every day. I don't think she's bouncing around the house to begin with, frankly. <laughs> no, not if she's a, <laughs> yeah. No, it's, and I was going to blame Evan for that, but I, I shan't. But, uh, yeah, I you know, it's the, the, the stories we hear back uh, literally every day are extraordinary. So, um, you know, if you're thinking about it, give it a try. It's uh uh, you know, if it gets you off taking an ibuprofen or doing something like that, it's 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 worth it. So, but yeah, I th- I think personally, while the lo- the oils will always be our flagship um, product, the topicals I think are the products that will become the most mainstream quickly. I mean, you can go to Kroger or Walmart or not Walmart, Walgreens, uh, pretty much anywhere now and buy topicals. So the lotion we're coming out with the balm at, uh, just after Christmas. Um, and uh, oh, we've got this really cool thing, which is like a cold roller. So you put it on, and it's like almost like a freeze, like a, it's like an icy hot without mm. the hot. Okay. So, uh, and it, you just roll that on, and you can feel it. Um, it's 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 pretty cool. Like some of this stuff, uh, you can notice on the topicals, you notice immediate effect. It's extraordinary. So I wouldn't have believed it myself uh, six months ago. It's amazing. And you you mentioned a beard oil coming up. Oh yeah, that's uh. So we worked out that everyone in our office has a beard, including the girls. I'm trying to work on mine, yeah, man. Yours is looking good. It's, I, I, well, you need the beard oil, right? Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So we've got a beard oil coming out in uh, December. Uh, 
which is called operator because all the operators mm. have beards and all the people that want to be, you know, operators, mm. I mean, you know, special forces guys, uh, have beards. And so we figured that was a good market for us. And we got asked for a bunch. Like my barber, uh, Phil, who's a great guy, he was like, you guys need to do a beard oil. I'm like, you know what, we've been asked, let's do it. So we're doing this beard oil. It's got cedar and orange and something else, which I can't remember, <laughs> uh, which which our guys in the lab have. It smells amazing. Uh, it'll have um, a good hit of CBD. And the main thing with it, it'll be good for, you know, uh, conditioning your beard, uh, the skin, you know, for eczema and everything else. Um, so I'm really excited about the uh, about the beard oil. So your your sublingual oil has uh, the ingredients basically are just CBD and MCT oil, right? Yeah, coconut oil. Yep. Um, well, MCT oil from coconuts, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Which stands for medium chain triglycerides. Ooh, damn, you're good. So if you are on a ketogenic diet, yes. and you're afraid ah, CBD oil does it have carbs? No, not only does it not have carbs, it promotes ketosis. It does. That's very true. It's fractured uh, coconut oil. Whatever that means. Yeah. But, um, well, specifically the medium chain triglycerides from the coconut oil. Correct. So that's, that's amazing. You should come and work in our <laughs> chemistry department. Uh, it, yeah, there's, you can take it, you know, whenever. It's, it's, if you're on the keto and that sort of thing, this is 100% hunky dory. Why did you choose to use that with the CBD? That the 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 coconut oil is you know across the industry that's probably the 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 main carrier oil that people use. The CBD uh, is uh, fat soluble. Yes, it's not water soluble. Right. So you know th- this is another thing. Okay, this is another bugbear of mine. You know you see all these products. Oh, we've got water soluble CBD. We've got you know CBD water. That's just not true. Right. CBD, the molecule, does not dissolve in water. So if you see a product that says this is water-soluble CBD, it's not. It's just not scientifically possible. Uh, and then there's, there's processes where they're trying to, uh, you know, break down the molecules and, and or put a coating over the molecules so it'll, you know, this is way outside my pay grade. But, they're, they're, you know, there's people claiming to have done that. We've seen no proof of it yet. So just from my limited non-existent expertise, mm. I, I would argue that medium-chain triglycerides are an effective carrier for CBD oil uh, or for anything that's fat-soluble uh, because they're extremely bioavailable as far as fats go. Yes. So it, it's if you put butter in it instead of MCT oil, right, it, it might take longer for the CBD to kick in. Right. Funny thing is, though, that is why CBD oil with uh, – suspended in MCT is actually really uh, easy to cook with yeah. because you can put it in a cake or in cookies or whatever and it just melds straight in there. It's also extremely high smoke point. That's true. Jeez, you're really up on the – you're up on the lingo. But, yeah, that's true. It is. Um, So you can cook anything with it. You can. I've cooked – I even uh, even, um, uh, had a deer loin that I took last season – and instead of using you know just butter or whatever on the to uh, to season it, I actually basted it with um, CBD oil. Wow, how it was that? Turned out great. Really? Yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, it's an expensive way to baste a loin of uh, a loin of uh, so deer. But if I took deer tenderloin, basted it in CBD oil, and just rubbed it on my knuckles, 
Yeah, oh, that'd be amazing. Yeah. Yeah, because you've got all that dead deer goodness <laughs> coupled with the oil. <laughs> it's fantastic. So it's really like rubbing the forest on your hands with CBD. That could be a good market for us. Better than patchouli. Oh, better than patchouli. <laughs> we could actually do cubed chuck, venison chuck, soak it in and then sell it as a thing where you stick your hand in it. <laughs> I don't think that's going to speak to your vegan audience. No, we don't, I don't think we have any vegans. But it speaks to me. Yeah, I don't think we have any vegans that use on duty. <laughs> yeah, right. Vegans are... Yeah. Well. They're... they're yeah. Fine people. They are fine people. Like, I know vegans. Mm. Sure. They don't know, I have vegan friends. They don't know what they're missing out on, <laughs> you know. Okay. okay. Uh, nothing better so, than a big juicy steak, right? So, so you you said you moved to Kentucky uh, late 2018, early 2019? No, this year. This um, year. Mm-hmm. Uh, simply because of the on duty. We uh, it, it was a case of... Um, you know, keep commuting, which I did for the first couple of months, and that gets a bit tiresome. And then I was like, well, bite the bullet and let's move to Kentucky. Best thing we ever did. Turns out it's really not much of a bullet to bite. No, it's uh, right. We love it here. It's fantastic. I just, it, it's, it's pretty. The people are nice. Um, the traffic kind of sucks sometimes around Lexington or on those ring roady things. Okay, I'm going to point a contention here. It's not Nashville traffic. Tell me a city that has a Whole Foods grocery store Mm. that has better traffic than Lexington. Yeah, I don't know. I've never been to a Whole Foods. Actually, I have online, but um, now that Amazon owned them, I don't go to Whole Foods anymore. What? Amazon has the military internet now. What are you talking about? No, they missed it. They gave it to Microsoft. No, they didn't. Yeah, they did. Okay. Because because President Trump uh, got the shits with Amazon or with Jeff Bezos and the Washington Post, and uh, he blocked Amazon from getting the contract. Are you serious? Yeah, happened like last week. I thought this was already been in development for like eighteen months. It has. Mm-hmm. So now I bet you he doesn't get Prime anymore. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's got two week delivery. He gets two week delivery. And he has to pay five bucks. He's, he's got to go to the store himself. He has to. Yep, <laughs> yep. He does, and uh, he has to get his hair product at the store. <laughs> he has to go down to Piggly. Actually, they don't have Piggly Wigglies in Washington, but he goes down to the Paris Teeter. Yeah, he go, there's a there's the uh, Soviet Safeway, is what we call it in downtown. DC. He has to go to the Soviet safe. I went to uh, I went to a gas station outside the Pentagon, and I think it was trying to buy batteries. And they said, "Show me your military ID." I was like, "What are you talking about?" And they're like, "Well, you can't shop here." Oh yeah, was, yeah. You're probably. Oh, I know exactly the yeah. gas station you're at. Yeah, it's right in front of the Pentagon at the yeah. bottom. Yeah, yeah. They didn't appreciate me even coming there. No, they don't like your type there. Yep, Trump probably not either. Oh, he well, he'd be allowed to go there, I guess, because he's commander in chief. Yeah. But, he but only get, if he has his ID. Yeah, if he doesn't have his ID, is <laughs> the beast and him are going to get kicked out. But seriously, come to Kentucky, um, other than uh, ideal climate for uh, growing and marketing CBD oil, uh, what's yeah, appealed to you? Well, I personally, I just like Kentucky writ large. I think Lexington is beautiful. Uh, the, you know, the horse country is amazing. Uh, but from a business perspective, uh, you know, the state has been very supportive. Uh, obviously, you know, as history uh, attests, uh, you know, Kentucky is, you know, the ground zero for growing hemp as it has been for, you know, since the Revolutionary War kind of deal. 
or certainly since the um, War of Northern Aggression. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I've been in the South a while now. Uh, you know, so it's it's perfect uh, for, and there's a reason there's a huge hemp industry here because the the, the conditions are ideal for growing hemp, and then the then the business environment is supportive of that. And that's a combination you really, even when you go onto the West Coast to California or Oregon or anywhere, those two don't marry up exactly, right? So here it's a perfect storm for uh, the hemp industry. And then, you know, the, 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 the you know, politicians here, the state and the federal politicians, uh, you know, uh, should be applauded for uh, having the vision to, to get behind it because, frankly, Kentucky leads the country in the hemp industry, you know, that we might not have the... I think we're third uh, in, in actual growth after California and Oregon or Colorado, California and Colorado. But the product is, I would argue, significantly better. The, the uh, business environment for it is... I don't think it could be, be any better. Uh, well, it probably could, but, you know, it, it's, it's very good. Uh, and, you know, and the other part of it is you bang smack in the middle of the country. So for a distri- from a distribution perspective, uh, it's fantastic. And, you know, in the marketplace, uh, hemp or CBD ma- uh, grown and manufactured in Kentucky has a terrific rep- reputation. Sure. So if you're in Madison, Wisconsin, and you're shopping for CBD and there's three things on the shelf... That one's got the uh, you know Kentucky Proud stamp on the side. There's a good chance you're going to buy that because the reputation Kentucky has, pardon me, for CBD and for hemp. So it's been great. I just I love it here. Were you a bourbon drinker before you came here? Uh, yes, yeah. I was. So this was like uh, this was you know just for me. This is fantastic. Like yeah. I'm a I, I I seldom drink beer except. When I have, um, you know, Australian for beer Fosters, like this is like drinking out of a forty-gallon bucket of beer. <laughs> so I don't drink beer very much anymore. I drink bourbon, and uh, you know that was the other reason I. Actually, truth be told, that was really the reason. I moved here. <laughs> the CBD business was just a, a ruse to get my wife here. <laughs> so yeah, I'm I'm a, a big bourbon guy. I've written some uh, articles on bourbon. Uh, I've uh, I like to drink bourbon. I've got to know a few of the you know a few of the folks, um, um, you know, at Four Roses and at Brown Foreman and uh, uh, Heaven Hill and those sort of places. And uh, they're all really you know the great thing. Unlike the wine industry, the bourbon industry is still kind of real. Like the mm. wine industry is full of what we call back in Australia wine wankers. You know, it's just full of I hate to say it, douchebags. Yeah, uh, the bourbon industry hasn't. That hasn't happened yet. Probably will at some point. But, I mean, you know, and maybe it won't. I mean, everyone's very grounded. You know, you can talk to the, you know, the guy that's the, the chairman of, uh, of um, uh, Brown Foreman, nicest guy in the world, uh, and, you know, their company is Jack Daniels and Old Forrester and, you know, they're a huge, huge listed company on the stock exchange, yet they're... Senior guys are the nicest people you'll ever meet. Same with obviously Four Roses with Brent and the guys at Four Roses, or uh, you know at Heaven Hill. Uh, Heaven Hill, likewise. 
uh, and any of the others you throw in there, you know, from town branches, you're just across the board. There's good folk. They're good folks in the industry and I think that's why people enjoy it so much. You know, I I really love the bourbon industry. I like, you know, I like really good bourbon. I've drunk some really crappy bourbon. Uh, I don't remember, but I apparently have. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, it's... Um, yeah, it's a gr- it's a great it's a great you know it's the American spirit. So you, you mentioned Brent. We have a mutual friend uh, who I, I guess now is a master distiller at Four Roses. Oh yeah, Brent Elliott. He's, he's got he's signs the side of the bottle. Now. How did you get to know Brent? I met Brent uh, probably three years ago at the Kentucky Bourbon Affair, which is a you know I think about a hundred or eighty people come into Louisville uh, and you go and uh, you know you, you pay for it obviously. Uh, and you go and meet, you know, you go and do tours but guided by someone like Brent or guided by um, the guys at uh, at Wild Turkey. Um, name just escapes me. But so that's how I met Brent. He was doing this KBA event and I got chatting to him uh, and we just kept in touch and we formed a friendship and, um, uh, yeah, we... we uh, yeah, that, so that was probably three years ago. That's how I met Brent. How do you know him? So you'll appreciate this. So I'm the youngest of three kids. Uh, my brother is 10 years older than me. His name's David. But his best friend, his uh, mid-childhood best friend through the rest of adulthood, was a uh, Marine. Uh, he's retired now, but he was a major in the Marine Corps. Uh, his name is Foster. Uh, yeah, right. So Foster Ferguson. So Foster's little brother, Lee, who was a super close family friend of ours, our also married a girl named Blake Ferguson, who happens to be Brent's sister. Oh, my God. Yeah. Only in Kentucky. Yeah, right. So when I was like a freshman, sophomore in college, uh, I would go my, – my brother was in MBA school here at UK. He came back. That's actually how I got together with my wife. She was in MBA school with my brother. Uh, but we would go to UK games with, with Brent, Blake, Lee, and my brother. Yeah. But I did have a, uh, a marketing project in college, uh, and I was like, well, what do I have access to that I can provide any insight at all? And I was like, well, Brent works at Four Roses. So at, at the time, Brent's title was uh, chief chemist. Get uh, out. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I was like, hey, Brent, I got to do a project. Uh, I think maybe it makes sense for me to do it on bourbon since we know each other. Yeah. He's like, yeah, come on over. So Brent takes me up, me and my friend Brent takes us up into his lab, and I'm not like a big drinker, no, by no means a bourbon expert. Um, but Brent has this, uh, he pulls us up into his lab, and he's, he takes us through the tour that shows us the distillation, the manufacturing process, all the different bourbons they make. And the most interesting part was uh, he has this file cabinet, like half of that wall is right. the size of this file cabinet, and he has all these different bottles of, of liquor, which uh, are unlabeled, mm-hmm. right? So he gets these shot glasses out, lines them up on the table, pours them all. And he's like, all right, you guys do a taste test. You tell me, you tell me what you like. So some of them were um, different phases of the distillation process with Four Roses bourbon. Mm-hmm. So some of it was like white dog before oh, it's I ever see. been mm-hmm. aged in the barrels. But some of it was like competitors. And then some of it was each different Four Roses bourbon. So he said, just pick out two or three that are your favorite, right? So growing up in Kentucky and being exposed to the culture and the marketing, I'm thinking, well, like, the best bourbons are Maker's Mark and Woodford. 
Right. Um, uh-huh. Which, I mean, they're important parts of our culture and right. important parts of the bourbon trail. Uh, but this b- completely blind taste test, like a Pepsi challenge, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, m- myself and my friend Brett both picked out our, our two favorite bourbons, and we picked out the same ones. Uh, and what they were was the Four Roses Super Premium, which is which at the time was only <laughs> sold in Japan. Right, yeah. Not sold here. And the other thing was the Small Batch. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is cheaper than a single barrel. Which is like 28 bucks. Yeah, it's like yeah. 28, 30 bucks. Yeah. Um, but we didn't know what we were picking out, right? Yeah. We just said, that tastes good. Uh, so that's what we picked out. And Brent explained to us at the end that we both picked out exclusively Four Roses of Bourbons as our favorite taste. Um, and it wasn't until recently, my friend um, my friend Mike Menkel, who was a previous guest on the podcast, you guys should know each other. He started a company uh, 2015. He builds guitars out of bourbon barrels. Oh, wow. So he's the first and only person to ever build the entire guitar out of the bourbon barrel. Wow. So not just the body, but the neck. The entire thing is is from a bourbon barrel. The strings so, would be pretty tough. Well, yeah, then the strings. Uh, but those staves that the guitars are hanging on yeah. behind you mm-hmm. uh, came from bourbon barrels from his shop, and he and I worked on those together, and cool. he was a previous guest on the show here. Uh, but he's 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 got a good relationship with Brent too. Uh, but I, I was surprised to know you have a relationship with Brent because that's really the only person in the bourbon industry that I know. And I, I just recently learned that he's a master distiller. Well, we'll have to uh, get a photo and send it to him. To yeah, we uh, absolutely have to do that. Uh, yeah, I, funny story with Brent. Uh, I was on that KBA thing I told you about a couple of years back, and uh, we went and did this. Uh, part of the thing was you know. The, they they popped like I don't know what the bourbon term is, but they opened. You know, took the cork out of mm. I think six or ten. It was ten barrels, and everyone there, you know, did what you did was blind taste. Everyone voted for the one they liked. Anyhow, myself and two buddies were there. Of the there was probably only fifteen of us, and we the three of us liked this one. You know, number letter E. We liked E. Anyhow, no one else voted for the E. Right. Uh, they all voted for this other one, which we was our last choice, anyhow. And part of the deal was, you know, we got a bottle of the one that was the most popular, mm. and, uh, so it was fine. Anyhow, uh, I said to Brent afterwards, uh, you know, we'd like to buy the barrel that you know the that whole he barrel came out of, that he yeah. came out of, and he's like, yeah, no, <laughs> that's that's going to be you know barrel select premium, blah blah blah. And I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, so I then went and talked to his assistant, uh, and I said, hey, can I buy that barrel? And she's like, yeah, sure. <laughs> so anyhow, we literally do the transaction there and then to buy this barrel. like, And we worked out where it was going to get sand, the whole shooting match. Uh, and uh, at the end of it, you know, well, actually it was the next day we're at another event and Brent was there. I said, hey, Brent, uh, thanks for uh, selling us that barrel. He's like, what? I said, yeah, we bought it. And he's like, no, you didn't. I said, yes, I did. And he was like so pissed off. <laughs> Uh, because he had it earmarked it for so you know, he'd marked it for something. It's fantastic, let me tell you. It's probably it's hundred and thirteen proof. I think it's the best bourbon I've ever drunk. He was probably gonna send it to Japan for like a million dollars. And uh, it's now sitting in my uh in my basement. You should bring that to your office. I, I have one to bring to the office, yeah. Okay. I don't tell anyone it's there and I just drink it quietly myself like a like a sad guy. But uh yeah, he was so mad at me. But um, he got over it. It's yeah. a ama- it's amazing bourbon. It's just amazing. It was thirteen years old. So they make uh, they make bullet right at Four Roses. No, 
bullet. I don't think so. Oh, mate, no, yeah, I, don't, I think so. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe they do. They make. Oh, I really like Four Roses. I know there's some other bourbon like brands that, that are, get made by that other get people. made yeah. by Four Roses. No, Bullet is their own. Uh, I've met Tom Bullet. I don't know him, but I've met Tom Bullet. He's, he still works at Bullet. Someone probably owns Bullet. You know, one of the big, you know, uh, companies. But Tom Bullet is still the president of Bullet Bourbon, okay. which is kind of fun. He's only a young guy too. Huh. So he he was a very nice fellow as well. Like everyone's just nice, you know. They're just personable. It's Kentucky, man. So they're hospitality. That's, that's why I like it here. It's uh, it's just a I, Kentucky is just a great state. If anyone had said to me, you know, you're going to move to Kentucky, I'd be like, uh, no, I'm not. <laughs> um, I still I still root for Alabama football though. Roll Tide. Yeah. Hashtag Roll Tide. Well, everybody likes a winner, right? Correct. Yeah. So it was like when I moved to Alabama, it was like, well, you can root for. Auburn or or uh, Alabama, I'm like, well, why would I root for Auburn? Mm. Because they don't win as much. Mm. So that's how I chose my Well, it's team. legitimate that you don't have an excuse because you're not originally from here. Right. Yeah. So now I'm all about all about Roll yeah. Tide. So, yeah. Okay. Um, and I'm, I'm just hoping we crush LSU. So when people listen to this. LSU's and, good. They are good. This, and my, my best friend is a huge LSU fan. And if we lose, oh, it's going to be awful. It's questionable this year. And if we win, though, I'm just going to give him so much grief over the next two weeks. It'll be unconscionable. So you decided to be an Alabama fan instead of an Auburn fan? Of course. Like, no. uh, it's all about the Crimson Tide, baby. Yeah. They but, win. Yeah, because they were good when he moved here. Yeah, and I don't like orange. Yeah. Well, who does? No one. Yeah, Dutch. Have you, the have Dutch you, like orange. Have you seen that I Hate Tennessee YouTube video? That is, the, I watch that every year before yeah. we play Tennessee. Yeah, Neyland Stadium looks like a garbage truck workers convention. <laughs> I wonder, like, that's got to be 10 years old, that video. I, yeah. I no, it's to, at least 10 years old. I, I just hate Tennessee, man. I don't know. I would love I to find yeah. the uh, what that guy in that video is doing yeah. now. Uh, it's a puke inside of a pumpkin orange. <laughs> it's so great. <laughs> like, someone must have found him and interviewed him again yeah. because he's just amazing. He sure is. I send his meme out all the time. Can you imagine being, like, making that video and, like, that's your life's work? <laughs> yeah. Like, now, that's what you are. And now he probably works at KPMG yeah, or somewhere. Right. And every year people send that to him. Right. <laughs> Until he dies. They'll play that at his funeral. It's so funny. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so we were talking about, Brent, talking about bourbon. Uh, you... Uh, we're into bourbon, became something really of a bourbon connoisseur here in the in Kentucky, and you've you've actually you've actually properly you've written about bourbon. I have. It was uh, so we do a lot of work uh, with the with on duty with a group called Skillset. Uh, they and there's their little um, there's their magazine right there. It's been sitting on the counter. Uh, they have a podcast as well, uh, which is fantastic. Uh, you should, uh, folks, uh, when you're not listening to this podcast, they should try that one out. Okay. The Skillset Podcast. They have a magazine that comes out uh, uh, quarterly. Uh, and they asked me, you know, immediately when you move to Kentucky, you must be an expert in bourbon. So uh, Jason and uh, Ben at uh, Skillset asked me to write a, an article, you know, on bourbon. And we tried to talk about, you know, we didn't, didn't want to write a, you know, boring article about bourbon. So we decided... You know, what is every, you know, what's the everyday bourbon drinker drink? You know, what's a good bourbon that's under 20 bucks? It doesn't cost you $100, $70. So I, uh, you know, I stepped up, did the hard yards. Mm. I drank some really, really, really bad bourbon. Mm. But I drank some really good bourbon too. 
and it was under you know under twenty dollars, you can get some pretty good bourbon. You know, a lot of it you might want to mix with ginger or or uh, or put in a cocktail, but it's good bourbon. So I wrote this article for Skillset, and it's called "Best Bourbon Under Twenty Bucks." Um, Old Forester, uh, uh, which which I call the country club bourbon, mm. because in Alabama it's in every country club in the state. Uh, it's the poor. Uh, I drink it at home now. I actually drink the 100 proof, the orange label, uh, Old Forester. Uh, but a very close second. I was trying to make them be even, but the editors wouldn't let me have two winners because they thought that was sort of soft. So Brent uh, came second. So I'm, I've, I haven't told him yet. I've got to send him a copy of the magazine and say, <laughs> sorry about that. You came second. Uh, but, you know, there was the Evan Williams, the black label Evan Williams, and, of course, 81 Wild Turkey was on there, 81 Proof Wild Turkey, the old granddad. And the benchmark, uh, you know, from Buffalo Trace, you know, that's I don't even know how much that is, like $8 a bottle. It's pretty good bourbon. Like, it's, it's not offensive. Uh, Kentucky Gentleman, on the other hand, uh, I don't even remember how much that came in. I, I referred to Kentucky Gentleman as... Clint Eastwood's character in Gran Torino. <laughs> Angry, bitter, unpleasant, intolerant and pride, prone to yelling at kids on bike. Oh, my God. It's, uh, it was, And I'm using that just to set up the next article so I can write about the mm. ten worst bourbons. Mm. But it was, it was a really interesting article to do and uh, it just shows that, um, you know, you can get a decent daily drinker for under 20 bucks. And, uh, but it's a great magazine, skill set magazine. Uh, uh, you know, I recommend it highly. Uh, I also wrote another piece in here called Six Ways to Die in North Korea, uh, which was kind of fun. Not right. dying in North Korea, but writing the article. And they we talked about uh, uh, how you know, how Kim Jong-un blows people up with anti-aircraft guns and mortar fire and wild dogs and all that sort of stuff. Cuts the um, people to a tree and lets dogs eat them. Yeah, he's a, he's a really charming fellow. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't have him at a dinner party, but... Uh, yeah, so that's Skillset Magazine. Oh, funnily enough, this weekend uh, uh, we're sponsoring the Skillset Demolition Derby team uh, that have got a car and a demo derby in Phoenix on the mm. weekend. Uh, us and Blackhawk uh, Holsters and a few other companies are sponsoring their car. Uh, we're on the uh, front left fender with our One Duty logo, <laughs> so we're probably going to be the first logo off the car because if I was driving in the other team, I'd be hitting that fender and trying to knock these guys out. But uh, So I'll, I'll update you so you can update your listeners on how their, how their demo derby car goes. You, you have an ownership stake in uh, Skillset Magazine? Is this a quarterly? Yeah, it's a quarterly. No, I don't know. I just uh, I write for them and... Uh, Obviously, I've been on their podcast and I listen to their... Their podcast is fantastic. comes out once a week. Um, it's really worth listening to. You'd enjoy it. It's, they, I'll definitely it's, check it out. Yeah, it's called the, uh, you know, the, the alpha... Skill set's all about the alpha lifestyle. Okay, uh, w- without commentary, I'm just going to read some of these headlines okay. from Skill Set <laughs> Magazines. You ready? Mm. How to dump your psycho girlfriend before she kills you. <laughs> Okay. I wish I had have read that back in college. All right. Survive your first night in jail. Mm-hmm. I wish I had have read that back in college. Six ways to die in North Korea. Greg's contribution. Yeah. Uh, my first aerial firefight. Yeah, that's a very good friend of mine. Cork uh, wrote that uh, article. Uh, he's a bit of an American badass. And, yeah. Uh, he's a good. He's a great guy. He's a he uses on duty CBD. Funnily enough, the assassin's closet. Yeah, that talks about the yakuza. 
uh, all those bad Jap guys. Beating down the bully. I can get behind that. Yeah. And then um, I'm a little bit mystified by this one, Undercover Alcoholics. It's actually a pretty funny article. It talks about the best way to smuggle booze into sporting events. <laughs> <laughs> I think the best one in there, it's a, uh, it's a baseball glove, so you wear it on your hand, yeah. and it's got a flask built into the glove. Okay. And you take the little thing out and you pour it in your <laughs> cup. I thought that was – there was also one in a Bible, uh, which uh, might get a few people's heckles up. Uh, but there was a there was some uh, pretty ingenious ways to get uh, to get your uh, bourbon into a uh, into a baseball game. Okay, speaking of SEC sports, mm. uh, so you pro- you haven't been in Kentucky for a long. You're probably aware. So there is a um, a radio show here, Kentucky Sports Radio. Mm-hmm. Uh, the host uh, who built the um, regional media empire, uh, Matt Jones. Uh, was just kicked off the radio today. Uh, they're live in nearly every county in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I would challenge you to find a radio show in the state of Kentucky that costs more to advertise on wow. uh, than Kentucky Sports Radio. Uh, he also does some ESPN, some national NFL football coverage. Uh, but Matt owns a bar here in Lexington, KS Bar. Uh, but he has been considering a run for the United States Senate to challenge Senator McConnell. Ooh. Uh, so he had a TV show, Hey Kentucky, uh, and he was booted off the TV show thanks to the corporate ownership being afraid of Amy McGrath. But as of last night, uh, Mitch McConnell, Republican Party of Kentucky's people, uh, have filed an FEC complaint, uh, with iHeartRadio, formerly Clear Channel Communications, the biggest radio Mm -hmm. provider in in the United States. Uh, against Matt Jones uh, on the grounds that iHeartRadio has been providing uh, in-kind campaign contributions uh, on the the argument that uh, because he has a radio show and is doing a book tour, his book is called Mitch Please. Uh, (laughs) But uh, he was kicked off. They've had a radio show since like 2010, and he was kicked off the radio show today he was not on the radio for the first time in nearly 10 years because of mitch mcconnell's people uh so interestingly enough uh i happen to know on duty cbd uh has just started advertising on (laughs) kentucky sports radio we have the website starting last night so you you might have picked the best night in the last decade to start advertising well we uh we obviously engineered everything well clearly Yeah. yeah well um, well, I mean, look, I think that's uh, stupidly short-sighted of McConnell's people. I yeah. mean, that is so stupid. Like, if the guy's running against you and he's a radio show host, that's his job. Suck it up. Right. Do a better job or or, or counter his arguments. But don't, don't go to the courts or people are sick to death of that sort of nonsense. Right. I think it's like if Mitch, if you're listening... Uh, that was really dumb. There you go, I said it. Now, according to McConnell's people, they didn't have anything to do with this. This is all just the FEC, the Republican Party of Kentucky. That's so stupid. It seems clear that it was his office that had to do of with course. filing this complaint. And whether right? it wasn't his office, it would have been one of his, you know, ba- they're not going to, no one is going to have the wherewithal to think to do that unless it's supported by uh, McConnell's office. Right. I mean, that's just a nonsense. So, so interestingly, the radio show was on the air today, um, 
and the people that are his co-hosts that hosted that are hosting in his place mentioned the hashtag on Twitter free Matt Jones. And today on Twitter, the number one hashtag during the radio show in the United <laughs> States was hashtag free Matt Jones. It, in response to the, this whole controversy with Mitch McConnell getting booted off the air. Hashtag Mitch bad idea. <laughs> I mean, it's just stupid. Like, McConnell should fire people for this sort of nonsense. Yeah. Like, this is, you know, this is giving, you know, I don't know Matt's politics, I don't know Matt, never met him, Don't I've never listened to his show, but it's just giving your opponent a bully pulpit to go after you with it. It right. is so stupid. Right. Short-sighted. Yeah, short-sighted. It's just just for people. People in this age of Trump where all this partisan BS is going on are sick to death of this sort of thing. And uh, I don't know. I if this, this deserves to blow back on McConnell. I don't know Matt. I don't support him. I don't anything. I, I Maybe I do. I, I don't know him. don't know his politics. But... From the from the senator's point of view, this is just a stupid idea. Yeah, you, the interesting thing is uh, when Amy McGrath's campaign uh, got him booted off Hey Kentucky, the TV show that he had, Mitch McConnell's people stuck up for him yeah, in the interest right. of free speech. Yeah, of course. Uh, and it's just, I, you know, I, this feels like it sort of violates every principle I have with respect to free speech. It, yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I'm I'm shocked that they were so short-sighted and, and so, you know, if look, if you can't win an election based on your career and your record, kicking an opponent out of their job, which is what they've done. Well, he's not even announced his candidacy for the Senate. He's just he's announced that he's considering it. He has an exploratory committee, committee, but he's not an official candidate. So right, and I think that's the distinction. I mean, if like you know, you look at guys on Fox News when they announce that they're running for president or running for governor, they immediately get taken off the air. Right, right, right. That's fair enough. Right, but Matt, this guy Matt, hasn't announced anything. He's just said, "Oh, that'd be fun." He's a radio host. Right. Not not only has he announced, not announced anything. Uh, I, full disclosure: I'm a regular listener to his program, mm. um, and since he's launched the exploratory committee, he's not actively discussed uh, his potential run or even politics in general on his show. Uh, he talks about Kentucky sports, and he talks about what fast food restaurant people should tend to patronize. Right. Well, and you know, this is this is the thing now. It now gives him a cause celeb to. Talk about like this is news. This is national news. Yeah, it absolutely is national news. And if I were him, uh, you know, if I if he employs me to run his campaign, <laughs> uh, I'd be saying, Matt, I'd be announcing tomorrow. Yeah, um, you if really, he's serious about it. No, he uh, he definitely is serious about it. Did you, do you think someone in Kentucky who has a radio show widely listened, though it might be? Has a chance electorally versus the Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell? Probably not, but, you know, everyone said that Donald Trump was a TV host and he had no chance either until he did. Um, And he was up against the Bush dynasty. He was up against, you know, you think of the people who are on that... So does he have a chance on paper? No. But was was Bevan going to be beaten as governor? This no. Mm. 
And, you know, you, at the end of the day, you can't be an asshole. Right. That's why Bevan lost because yeah. he was a prick Yeah. Um, to people. And you're going to, you know... This seems, just, it's, first of all, not to distract you, but yeah. that seems obvious, right? If you look at the ballot... All the way down the ballot, Republicans won. Republicans won in every single race. They won uh, secretaries of Everything. state. They, they were in. They won the special elections Handling. in the House. Handling. And it was yeah, it wasn't close. Right. But Matt Bevan didn't. Right, because I don't know Matt Bevan. I don't. You know, I've only been here a few months, but I've 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 seen how he interacts with the public and the press, and it's just not necessary, right? And so the risk McConnell has here is that he does some stupid stunt like this, he gets lumped into that pile. Like, I, as I said to you at the very start of the show, uh, I've met Senator McConnell a bunch of times. I've sat with him at dinner, and he's the nicest, most polite, lovely fellow uh, I've had the pleasure of meeting. This is just a, a, a rookie mistake, and I think it'll come back to bite him if this guy actually runs. I would tell you that I've had the same experience with Matt Bevan. I've had dinner with Matt Bevan twice. Mm-hmm. And on a personal level, he's he, we've talked about the children that he's adopted. We've talked about his personal life. And I've always gotten the impression that he was a really decent guy. And he probably is, but, but his personal, his public persona is not yeah, that. Yeah, he's just a nasty politician. And, and you don't need to be that. I, I know people that have worked for him directly in his office mm-hmm. that have told me they didn't vote for him. Wow. In this election, without naming names. Yeah, of course. And it's just... That speaks volumes. If you believe in your policy agenda and you believe that your policy agenda is necessary, why step over the line where you vilify people? It's just not ne- well. It's not necessary. In the era of Trump, people, you know, I think politicians go, "Oh, that works." You know, I have to be bombastic and over the top and say stupid stuff. You know what? It might have worked. It doesn't work anymore. People are sick of it. Well, if you notice, he made his campaign about national issues. The governor of Kentucky made his campaign about abortion and immigration, right? right? Because and, he and impeachment for God's and sake. impeachment because right. he knows full well that he's lost the people of Kentucky on his specific agenda. Yeah, which, from my standpoint, is unfortunate because I think a lot of his policy goals are worthy, right? Well, it's like I agree with the bulk of President Trump's policy initiatives, you know, with China and the foreign policy stuff. Yeah. Well, except Ukraine and yeah. the Kurds, but let's not talk about that. But in general, I agree with, you know, his you know, uh, immigration policies and all that sort of stuff. He just shouldn't be a bombastic, you know, in your face, you know, just govern. People elected you to govern. Just do that. Speaking of President Trump, so <laughs> I know um, – Joe Biden, and because he's a front runner in the Democratic mm-hmm. primary, um, he's been in the news a lot, and there's been some controversy with respect to his son Hunter. Yep, uh, and his relationship with uh, Burisma, mm-hmm. uh, and and some allegations of corruption. Um, so I know, I know that um, I've again done some googling on you. Yeah, um, you wrote to Joe Biden in response to his 9/11 speech in 2011 uh, yep. that he struck the right tone mm-hmm. and and you had a relationship with his son hunter also mm-hmm. um so um hunter joined the u.s navy at the age of 43 mm-hmm. uh yep. had to get an age waiver 
which yep. I understand you helped with. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he, he ended up being booted from the Navy because he failed a drug test for cocaine. Correct. All right. So my question to you, Greg, uh, is um, how, how does it feeling knowing that you yourself uh, may have secured a second term for President Trump? <laughs> it's interesting. The, uh, you know, Hunter, uh, you know, has, uh, you know, he's had a, a, you know, and he's admitted it, so I'm not you know, uh, spilling the beans here. You know, he's had substance abuse issues, you know, over the, you know, he, over the last, you know, decade or so. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, for, for his human frailties, he's a patriot. Okay. You know, he was the son of the vice president of the United States. He didn't have to join the Navy, right? Well, so uh, let's go into that a little bit further. So you were having a conversation with him coming from your military background. um, It's probably not something that you would have recommended to someone um, if if you didn't feel that that was appropriate. Right. Um, And I think in our politics, uh, we tend to see people in a a sort of one-dimensional, almost cartoon character kind of way. Um, and for you, for you with your experience and your background to say, Hunter, if, if you want to serve your country and if this is something that you want to do, I'll support you and I'll right. help you. And I think you should do it. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about where you're coming from. Well, look, I mean, I don't know what the actual figures are, but very few people, the percentage of people in the United States that either served in the military or even know anybody that served in the military is surprisingly very, 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 very low, right? It's tiny. We were having lunch. I, 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 the, the history of it is uh, I worked for a, a company and I did, uh, you know, Hunter and I worked on a few things together, so we knew each other professionally originally. Um, and we became uh, we became friends and he came to me for advice. He was like, you know, I would like to, you know, serve and join the military and we talked it through and... Uh, where he should go, and uh, you know, I, I helped him with everything, um, and he was, and he did. I don't think it. Well, I know his father didn't know he was doing it. it he tried. He wanted to do it all very, um, you know, by the book and everything, and he did, and he uh, put in his paperwork, and it's a hard process. Uh, but he got selected, and it was very competitive, and he got selected. It, but he had to have an age waiver oh, for, as a reservist, yeah, and you helped him with that. That's, yeah, but that's not that uncommon. Okay. Like, that's not uncommon. Like, uh, you know, the, the way they set that up is you have to be 50, no, whatever it is, you have to be able to do your 20 years before you're eligible for retirement. So you, all you're doing is saying, uh, yeah, I agree that I won't get retirement benefits because okay. I won't have done 20 years. That's all the age waiver is. Okay. Uh, so that's not, you know, it's beat up in the press about, you know, he got this waiver. I got that waiver. Like, that's not an uncommon thing. So he got that waiver. Uh, his packet, what we call the packet, the stuff he submitted, the documents, the data he submitted, was judged by a panel of people to be correct, like to be the strongest in the field. So he, he was accepted. Um, unfortunately, uh, he obviously lapsed back into... Uh, into uh, substance abuse and he got pinged for it and it was awful like you know we had we got together i think two or three days after it broke and uh uh, he was he was gutted um but you know but you know my my argument is you know he stood up he he did it he screwed up that's the bottom line 
uh, and he, you know, and he's paid for it in spades. But um, he's a very decent man. Uh, I've never met the vice president, uh, but he seems like a, uh, you know, he, a, 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 you know, a very decent person. You know, we we don't agree politically, but that to me doesn't matter when you're serving. You can't. There's a lot of people that, you know, I serve with that we didn't agree politi- on politics or a lot of things, but, you know, you're still serving your country and that's what you do. So, you know, I think the vilification of, you know, and I, I said to him, so did other people, that, you know, going on this board was a stupid idea, on the, the, the board in Ukraine was a stupid idea. Uh, but, you know, he made a business decision. That was his business. That's what he did. So, uh, you know, that's fine and that, that, that's blowing up in his face as well. So he... he He's made some bad decisions. He's the first one to, to admit it. The funniest thing about this whole episode, from my perspective at least, uh, was I got interviewed by the New Yorker magazine, like this uber-liberal you know, <laughs> New York publication. <laughs> Anyhow, so I uh, had a uh, – the, the, the journalist, I've got to say, was super thorough and I had um, uh, uh, a number of interviews with the New Yorker and, you know, you open up the New Yorker magazine and there I am getting, you know, my – two or three paragraphs of me talking about the Bidens in the New Yorker magazine. It was like, okay, the, uh, you know, the earth stopped turning. I'm, I'm quoted in New Yorker. I never thought, I never thought I'd see that. But, you know, you know, to wrap that up, the, you know, Hunter is a very decent man. He's a, um, a patriot. Um, uh, I'm just sorry that, you know, he's going through all this sort of, you know, if his dad wasn't running for president, this wouldn't even be an issue anymore. But he is and... You know, that's that's how it goes. So. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. Sure. So we've talked about your relationship with the Bidens. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and even though you've worked on Capitol Hill, you don't strike me as someone who's particularly a hyper-partisan. No, I'm not. I I I just don't like stupid. Yeah. So and everyone has their own definition of that, but <laughs> right. I I feel like you're sincere when you're coming from that. Um, right. But I, as I mentioned when we first started, uh, I did some googling. I know you're a contributor to the Hill, Fox News, and the Daily Caller. Mm-hmm. Um, and talk to me about your experiences. Um, yeah, it's 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 funny. I I sort of just stumbled into it. Uh, with some obviously some you know um, uh, counter uh, information operations you know counterintelligence uh, uh, counterterrorism kind of uh, background, um, I, I finally I, I knew a, a bunch of people at Fox from when I worked in Congress, and uh, there was a there was an incident. Oh, it was when there was a terrorist attack in Australia in Melbourne a number of years ago at a coffee shop in Melbourne, and they called me and said, you know, would you come on and talk about, you know, just Melbourne that set the scene. And uh, that day I think I was on Fox and Fox Business like eight times. Uh, and after that I just kept going on to talk about everything from North Korea to, you know, to Iran to, you know, issues as they, you know, the the uh, the Islamist terrorist, any, anything that was Islamist terrorist sort of focused or, or fundamentalist uh, Islam kind of deal. Uh, bombings in Germany at Christmas time. I just happened to be there, as it turned out. Uh, so uh, I've done a, a bunch of work on Fox, uh, uh, Fox Business, which I actually prefer doing, to be honest, because it's more 
uh, it's more news focused as opposed to commentary focused. So, you know, you talk to Cavuto or Charles Payne or Trish Reagan, uh, Reagan, I'm sorry, Trish Reagan on Fox, uh, on Fox Business, and it's more, uh, it seems more serious. You know, it's 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 not opinion so much as you're giving commentary on on issues. So that's been fun, and as a result of that, I've I've done other pieces of the the the, uh, the network I really enjoy going on is is a uh, it's a network called I twenty four, and it's the Israeli Fox News, and uh, I go on that regularly to talk about uh, terrorist issues, uh, terrorism with those guys. Uh, and that's that's been it's it's fun, you know. It's whether my opinions are right or not is another question, but uh, I, I enjoy that. Uh, I, I must say, I I I I actually really enjoy uh, writing on foreign policy and uh, um, national security issues, and uh, you know, written from everyone from the Washington Times to uh, I, I wrote a lot for the Hill, um, Roll Call, obviously, uh, which has been which has been terrific. The the problem now is, you know, with the with on duty CBD with the business, uh, I'm really, you know, I, I get called now. I'm like, yeah, I, I can't do it. I just don't. One, I'm not read into it enough, uh, and two, uh, I just don't have time to do it now, uh, which is a shame because I really enjoy it. So I'm still doing a, I'm still writing a little bit, but nowhere near like I was six months ago. Do you? Andrew Breitbart has a famous quote, uh, regardless of what you think of Andrew Breitbart, this quote I think speaks for itself, which is that politics is downstream from culture. Mm -hmm. Um, Do do you sense, as I do, that with the Trump administration, um, our our politics is more polarized than ever, and there's less room for nuance uh, and genuine conversation than there ever has been? Yeah, no question. No question. Uh, and I, you know, I, it's easy to to blame the Trump presidency for that, but you know, you go back, you know, four years, eight years, uh, you know, twelve years into the Obama presidency, and you know, President Obama was the was the United States president that turned people against the police. That he was the you know he was the one that sowed those seeds, True. and. It, Whilst I think President Trump is acting irresponsibly, particularly in this issue with the whistleblower and threatening ambassadors and not supporting his State Department uh, officials and uh, et cetera, et cetera, that's all true. But let's not lose focus or lo- on the fact that this 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 awful situation we find ourselves in, in my opinion, for what that's worth was started under the Obama administration. And uh, I think that's where things became polarised. It was them or us. Uh, and now it's flipped. Uh, you know, so there's a Republican, well, he was elected Republican in the White House. Uh, and I think it's easy to point the finger at Donald Trump for being, you know, a buffoon uh, insofar as his public statements go and his, his ridiculous Twitter feed. But... This was happening well before Donald Trump became president of the United States. And, you know, you would never have seen George Bush or, for that matter, Bill Clinton doing that kind of or or having that kind of polarising rhetoric that Obama did uh, and then bringing that across to being supersized by Trump. Uh, You would never have seen that. You know, 
I read both of uh, President Obama's books before the first one before he announced his candidacy for president. Uh, he had given the DNC speech, mm-hmm. um, and there were a lot of speculation that he might be the next nominee. Um, and I was like 18 years old. Yeah. Uh, and there was a part of me that... I hope you bought it at the dollar store so you didn't yeah, give him any money. Yeah, but, th- but there was a part of me that was excited uh, at the prospect of a post-racial, post-partisan president. Right that could unite the country and sort of heal a lot of the historic divisions that we had. Right. Um, and I, like, I, great. And I, I rooted for him in 2000, 2008. I rooted for, I, I wanted that to happen. Right. I, and I feel like he squandered. I mean, he had so much political capital from the campaign. Did he absolutely squandered? Oh, no uh, question. No he, question. He, he, he had, in my opinion, a historic opportunity to, to move forward and heal a lot of divisions in our country. And I, and I have to be honest, Greg, I feel like he furthered those divisions. Oh, I, there's no question. I, and I feel, I feel like we're, we're more politically and more racially divided than we have been since the 1960s. Uh, and, it, and, and, and while Donald Trump is a um, populist um, and speaks to that sort of um, – this is a sect of the population that just the us versus them sort of dichotomy sort of appeals to. It feels like he's just a reaction to uh, the political climate that was created during the Obama administration. I, look, I agree with that. And, uh, you know, the, the, you, you, you look at the – there's a whole litany of, of examples you could draw out from the Obama administration. And it's not just uh, – you know, it's not just racial divides; it's class divides. Yeah, it's, no, it's, yeah, it's it's it's. To me, the fact that you know the mainstream media skates over that and it's all roses and uh, and 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 rainbows. You know, the Obama presidency was the greatest thing since Lincoln, kind of deal. It could have been, but it wasn't. But it wasn't. And Trump gets blamed for everything. And you know, I'm not a big Donald Trump. Uh, fan per se. Well, aside from a number of his policies, I, I I just don't like the way he carries out the office of the presidency. Yeah, first of all, uh, it bothers me that you even have to issue that disclaimer to begin with. Right. You can't criticize President Obama along any dimension without saying, you know, I'm not a big Trump supporter. Right. Like, what uh, what is broken uh, about our politics that I can't sit here and it's say true. to you, you know, I think... Um, I think it's in general, it's a good thing that people can keep more of their own money uh, (laughs) and are better at investing their own money than some neutral third party is at investing their money without the assumption that I support 15 to 20 other policies, including a Twitter account uh, with respect to the president. Right. It's Mm -hmm. it's like I, I remember when I first started experiencing sort of a political awakening in my life. Um, I, I had this feeling that I wanted more people to care about politics, uh, mm-hmm. and I wanted more people to care about policy um, right. and, and our electoral future. But it, it, it feels like that did happen, but people care wrong. <laughs> it, yeah. it, it feels like our politics is broken. It, it feels like I can't, it, I can't issue an opinion about one particular issue without someone 
assuming 15 other policy positions that I might have and deciding what team I'm on. And I don't think it's fair and I don't think it's right and I don't think it's healthy. It's absolutely not. And, you know, and this is this is all part of this, uh, you know, this issue of, you know, governing by social media or governing by Twitter and, yeah. uh, you know, people's political uh, information is shouldn't be taken from 42 characters. And that's what it is. And if you, you know, the 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 problem now is if I disagree with you on an issue, uh, I can't talk to you anymore. Right? No, no. You know, if, if you dis- if you disagree with me, you can't buy a house with me. Right. But you know, if I'm in a foxhole and we're getting shot at by a bunch of uh, you know radical Islamists, I don't None give a crap matters. if you vo- if you voted for the Communist Party. That's right. Uh, well, I probably have an issue with that, but. Anyone else would be fine. <laughs> but, you know, that's, that's when you realise how stupid and how uh, disingenuous this whole, uh, you know, you know it's, it's politics by wedge. You know, people are just driving a wedge into every issue to, because they don't really have a platform. You know, it's, well, you don't like this, so I can't like you, and that's just what it is, and... I would, and we need to wrap this up, but I would argue that our politics is in a place now where it, it, it used to be that you have a certain population, a certain percentage of our country that's decided and they have a team that they're on. And you have another percentage of the population that's decided and you have a team that they're on. And then you have this sort of other sort of undecided percentage of the population where your objective in a campaign is to persuade those people. Right. Yeah. And I, I think we've moved moved past that. I think everyone is so over inundated and so overexposed to political messaging that we're at the point where the only objective is activation. It's no longer persuasion, right? It's we have to have the percentage of the population who's on our team right. so activated that they go vote. We don't care about persuading anyone who hasn't decided at this point. What we care yeah. about is getting the people who are already on our team to go and vote and support us, right? And so it, it, it's the pol- the polarization. I I don't know how we come back from it. It's yeah. ugly. There's no room for nuance. There's no gray area. It's, and yeah, and this will be the issue if you've got like uh, Elizabeth Warren, for instance. You know, if she becomes president post Trump, that's just going to get worse and worse. Of course, it will. It, the pendulum swings. Right. It'll just be the other side doing yeah, it. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, you know, we just have to, fingers crossed, that never happens. But um, I, 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 before I came on, I told myself I wasn't going to talk about politics. So that went out the window. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm worried that we're going to get an FEC complaint any minute. Well, but you're, but you're, um, yours and my argument both is not against a particular party or particular um, worldview. It's an argument in favor of nuance uh, and thoughtful conversation. Right. 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 And, and that that's what's and lacking. And sincerity. And that's yeah. what's lacking. And, right. And look, it goes back to that issue we were talking back at the very start about uh, earmarks in 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 Congress. Yeah. Congressmen and senators don't talk to each other anymore. No. Why because they? they have no reason that's to. That's right. And all this stuff starts at the top and trickles on down, you know, so until that becomes civil the rest of it's not going to be civil. And that's, you know, it's just simple math. And uh, well, it's not simple. If it was simple, it wouldn't be happening. But, you know, it. yeah, I, I agree. I, I'm not sure where, you know, how we, you know, what the road back is. You know, 
maybe, you know, there's a, a centrist, well, which people would have hoping, as you said, Obama was going to be, there's a centrist commander-in-chief at some point that uh, realises that and because I think the American people are sick to death of all this nonsense, like this stuff with McConnell and Matt, Matt Jones, people don't want to see or hear that stuff anymore. They've got enough to worry about, about making sure little Timmy gets his health care or gets to school or that grandma is uh, getting a, her broken leg fixed. They don't need to... People are tuning this stuff out now. Yeah. It, it's just... It's becoming irrelevant to folks. Yeah. I mean, I, I follow politics avidly and I'm tuning it out. I don't, Same. I don't read it anymore. I've never been nor, more tuned out in my adult life than Like the whole right impeachment now. thing, I don't even look at. I figure, well, when it all happens, I'll read about it. It is what it is. Because I just don't care. The rest is just noise. Yeah. And we need to filter that out and... But, you know, the more people, you know, if someone like me and you are becoming disengaged because of all the nonsense, people that were sort of on the fence are just like, I'm out of here. And that's, I think, the risk here and I think that's what's happening. But, you know. Yeah. I'm, 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 I am worried now that you are going to get an FEC complaint from, <laughs> from Trump, from the Obamas. You could be off the air by well, tomorrow. This is, uh, this is YouTube and uh, iTunes. This is oh, nothing to do with say the FEC. You, you can say pretty much whatever you want, right? Yeah, that's right. We You're can right. strip off naked right now. And that's right. We we can sell cannabidiol <laughs> on the podcast I can all never, day long. I can never say cannabidiol. Even now, <laughs> after you've said it, I still can't say it. And I talk about it. I hear it every day. I still can't say the words. <laughs> I don't know why. It just happens to me and I just can't say it. But we do have to remind people. Uh, and I've got to tell my team that the code KLP on the onduty.com, ondutycbd.com website will get you 20% off. KLP, as in Kentucky Live Podcast, will get you 20% off, which is not like a usual discount that you no, just normally it's always 10. give out. Yeah. If, we if, do, if you do a discount, yeah, we sell them it's discounts. 10. Yeah. You sell them discount. If you do one, it's 10. But for listeners to this program, it's 20. Well, it's funny. When I said 20, I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> but after I'd said it, I couldn't take I couldn't put that back. Just so, own it. Yeah, so Let's I just, just – there, won't be, there won't be that many. I, I was just like, oh, God, I just said 20. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's right. We, we, uh, we, try and, we don't discount very often. Uh, we do for Veterans Day and, and things like that, uh, but uh, generally not. Um, I think more pressing is Kentucky, Tennessee. Yeah. You've got to be in Tennessee. Have, have, you, have you seen the the meme going around the uh, with the withdrawal from Syria? There was the meme which was a picture of Kentucky, which is not Syria, and a picture of Tennessee <laughs> that says that. Syria. Oh, I did see that. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I that's that's that was good. That's still the guy talking about Kentucky, uh, talking about Tennessee being vomit orange. I hate Tennessee, man. I hate Tennessee. It's that too. puke inside of a pumpkin orange. <laughs> That's the funniest thing. Yeah. Um, and the... the Here, uh, let's go. Hold on. Here's what we're going to do. Greg, I, and I mean this with absolutely all sincerity, it really is an honor to have you at my house and on the show. Well, thank you very much. It's been a... It's been a... Uh, it's been a blast. Otherwise, I would have been at the office, so... Um, so what we're going to do... <laughs> I love this guy. What I... You know what? We need to find out what this guy does now, because this video has to be 10 years old. So what are we going to do here? Are we going to... We're going to conclude man, with uh, him. Just, uh, say what you've been saying, man. Why do you uh, hate Tennessee? Man, I hate Tennessee <laughs> because, first of all, it's Tennessee. And I, I, I just hate them because they, they, 
they low they down, they, they dirty, dirty, they some snitches. snitches. <laughs> and I hate Philip Farmer. I hate their colors. I'm not a dog person. I, I just hate Tennessee, man. Like, and I... I hate N- Nayland Stadium. Like looks like a garbage work, truck work, work worker convention. convention. <laughs> and I hate all their quarterbacks. I just, I hate Tennessee, man. I don't know, man. I just hate Tennessee, man. It, it, it reminds me, it, and it's not that orange that you can stand. See, I hate Tennessee more than I hate Auburn. I just dislike Auburn. I hate Tennessee. See, Tennessee's colors is it's that, it's that throw up orange. It's not that orange that you can sit with, it's that puke. Inside of pumpkin, pumpkin orange, orange. <laughs> that I, and I don't like pumpkins, so I just I just I, I really don't like Tennessee, man. I, I can't stress that enough, man. And they they, they losers, they sore losers because they they they're not Alabama, and I, I hate Tennessee, man. He's beautiful, man. Probably the best interview I've done all year. <laughs> <laughs> so the guy's name, I just I just looked him up. His name is Irvin Carney. <laughs> oh my god, that was from 2007 where Bama beat UT 41-17. He was a senior. Uh That was early years in Nick Saban. Yeah, first year I think. Uh he's from Montgomery, Alabama. Uh that was it's just the He now lives in Cincinnati. Oh, we got to have him on here. He's a data, Cincinnati. He's a data engineer. We got to make this happen. Seriously, when you do it, I want to come in as well. Do you think he has anxiety? Do you think he needs some on-duty CBD? Yeah, he probably does. Like, I want to meet him. So he's a data engineer in Cincinnati, and his name uh, is Irvin, whatever I said. Uh, we need to tra- – Irvin Carney, we need to track him down. Let's do it. This could be our, our mission. No, we're going to do this. If we're on duty, and this is our mission. <laughs> we're on duty, and this is our mission. <laughs> We need to we need to get him in. He would be a great interview. Okay, promo code KLP for twenty percent off. Yeah, any gosh. of on duty products. I'm gonna have to talk to my finance people tomorrow. They'll yeah. be like, "You did what?" Yeah, yeah. But this is not an act on Greg's part. Like, he generally screwed up here. I did, yeah, yeah. And it really is twenty percent off KLP. 20%. Yep, twenty percent off. All right, thank you, sir. Thank you, Thad. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, brother. That was fun. I'm on that party line.